Hello, welcome to Riot Act, the alternative music podcast. This is part of our classic album series of podcasts where myself, Stephen Hill, hello, that's me, and my co-host, Renfrey Deadman, that's him. Say hello, hello Renfrey. Hello, Renfrey. Hello. Pick an album from the annals of music that we think is worthy of being deemed a classic um we are joined being today deemed a classic I like yes that. i think that's a that's an important distinction to make um today we're going to be talking about a very very successful band but maybe not quite the period of this band's career that you might initially think when i say the name before i say the name i'm going to introduce our other guest we are joined by audience please podcast host and queens of the stone age super fan so we're told we'll be the judge of that uh it's adam valley hello adam hello mate how are you doing i'm i'm really good mate i'm really good i've kind of spilt the beans there by who we're doing queens of stone age um you love them by all accounts right Mm. yes i do uh yeah you're quite right i'm a bit of a super fan i've loved them since a very young age and yeah used to be quite obsessed with them and followed them around on tour and stuff uh obviously have every single record and various bits of merch as well but yeah absolutely love them mm. awesome. now what we what we do usually is um we kind of pick an album each and there are on occasions have been times where we think two albums are worthy of going into the vault for the classic album series and this is one of those occasions mm. now um two queens of stone age albums people would be assuming that uh that we'd be picking their second and third album so rated r and songs for the deaf but we're not doing that. Over on our Patreon page, you will be able to listen to part two where we, the three of us, talk about Rated R, the massive commercial and uh, critical smash that it was. But today, rather than going for the follow-up, we're going to be talking about the debut self-titled Queens of Stone Age album released on the 6th of October 1998. Now, I love this record, but I feel like it's not... Um, it's not an over-exaggeration for me to call this a little bit of a wild card pick, Renfrey. There's an awful lot of people who will be going, why have you not chosen Songs for the Deaf? Are you insane? Well, look, Songs for the Deaf is a wicked record. I absolutely love it. I think it's brilliant. I love the way that the radio segments like tie it all together, make it more conceptual, yada, yada, yada. Dave Grohl on drums, come on. That lineup, Mark Lanigan, yum, 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 yum. Yum, 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 yum. But <laughs> that first queen's record there's just something uh special about it the whole robot rock thing that we will be going into the way that Mm. it's a very um unique record in the uh queens of the stone age catalog in that it's kind of a a a, it marks a turning point between um josh homie's old band caius and uh and his new band queens of the stone age and i just think the songs on this record are just so underrated in so many ways i know that um myself and adam uh have had a conversation and i think that you would have plumped for songs for the deaf wouldn't you as the the resident massive queens of the stone age fan here uh is it total sacrilege that i'm picking queens of the stone age over songs for the deaf uh, no, I wouldn't say it's sacrilege. Um, there's a lot of people that I know who would consider self-titled their favourite album. It's usually between one of those first three albums. Controversially, I would put it fourth, 
in my uh, list of Queens Ooh. of Stones albums. Oh. All right, let's do this quickly. What's your, Come on, what's your top four? So, Songs for Death, obviously. Uh, Rated R, a second. Silly. Lullabies oh. for third. And then Self-Titled. Uh, and then Era Vulgaris, like Clockwork and Villains. Deary me. Well, um, that's, wow, the last that's all over be, the place. <laughs> that's the last we'll be hearing from, from Adam Valley on this show. Um, <laughs> um, that's an interesting, that's a very interesting order. Okay, we won't go, we won't go fully into that, but uh, that is a very interesting order. Lullaby's third. Mm. Wow. Mm. Mm. Um, mm. But no, I mean, I mean, for my money, Rated R and the first Queens of the Stone Age record, those are very much my two favourites, um, undoubtedly. Songs for the Deaf is a close third. You know, I do, I do love it, and I admit that it's an absolutely killer record. Um, but there's also a lot to talk about with the first Queens of the Stone Age record that a lot of people just don't know about. I think so. Hence, I wanted to go into it in uh, a bit more detail. Yeah, and uh, I'm actually quite glad that you did because um, this is a, a, a kind of weird period, I think, for. for for rock music and for stoner rock and for whatever else um queens of stone age are considered i mean 1998 obviously the height of new getting to the height of new metal corn and marilyn manson and the hole and bands like that are the the big things and queens of stone age couldn't be further removed from that kind of thing yeah well i suppose the interesting thing is um it's uh well it is a fellow period for stoner rock i mean um Queens of the Stone Age as a whole, and Josh Homme in particular, doesn't really like the stoner rock tag at all. Again, something else that we'll get into. Um, but I think this first Queens of the Stone Age album there's definitely had definitely has the most stoner rock vibe to it. So definitely. whilst I would whilst I would broadly agree with Homme that Queens of the Stone Age as a whole it's a bit unfair to just lump them in with stoner rock as a whole. I think when we're talking about this album, I think stoner rock's fairly uh, fair to say. You're nodding along there, Adam, so yeah. you agree with me there? Yeah, I would say um, this album was definitely the bridge between Caius and the rest of Queens of Stone Age's career. Um, obviously, we'll go into like the songs, but um, yeah, just the general sound and the way it was recorded and everything else was very different to the rest of Queens of Stone Age's career. It was it was the starting point for Josh Homme for him to almost uh, draw a line uh, in the sand under Caius and um, stamp mm. his mark as a almost as a solo artist at this point. If anything, it wasn't really mm. it wasn't really Queens of Stone Age. It was going. This is my project and this is what I want to do. One hundred percent. I would like to start, uh, if you'll permit me, with just a tiny little bit of Caius um, chat, because I do think that it's important to give a little bit of perspective um, for uh, for Caius in order to get into this record properly. We will go into Caius in a big way uh, because both me and Steve have Caius records on there. So this is going to be truncated. Um, but uh, I do think it's important to cover this stuff because there's a lot of... Um, well, there's quite a lot of incestuous relations between Queens of the Stone Age and Caius, I think it's fair to say. Um, mm -hmm. Thankfully, not in a literal sense. Goodness me, that'd be awful. That we're aware of. <laughs> <laughs> Careful. We don't need lawyers. <laughs> we don't need lawyers for this one, Steve. <laughs> okay, so Joshua Michael Homme. 
attended the Palm Desert High School where he met Nick Oliveri. And Homie was given his first guitar at the age of 10 and started taking polka lessons, which um, I don't really hear an awful lot of polka on the rest of his career. Uh, He said it went from that to hardcore punk in about two weeks. My earliest influences were Jock from GBH and Bones from Discharge. When I first heard punk music, it was so fucking badass. It got you completely pumped. When I hear that, I feel like I can jump off a 30-story building and live. They never played solos that you could really hear, but they had this really real straight up and down style strumming of chords. I still play that way. I think the straight up and down style strumming of chords and the punk rock influence of Queens of the Stone Age are still things which are insanely prevalent in their music today. Um, Particularly particularly the punk as fuck kind of like we're going to do whatever the fuck we want to do kind of thing. Um, so that just seemed like an important um, uh, point to to make. Adam, you're nodding away there. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely think um, in regards to sort of his influences, uh, I think some of the things I wrote down were not only sort of that punk sound, but like things like Black Sabbath. Um, he grew up on mm-hmm. blues, for example, which you can hear in his guitar playing. Um, it's not a traditional way of playing guitar, um not at all uh elvis zz top um yeah josh hom has an array of influences from an early age and you can definitely hear that uh across caius and then into queens of stone age it really is that massive blend of influences that comes from all sorts of different places that me and steve talk about on the show all the time you know it's always the best bands that that get that very range diverse uh amount of voices uh, into mm. one style and certainly you know as a guitarist myself i mean whenever i learn to play queens of the stone age songs there is he does have a very odd way of playing rhythm guitar which is very difficult to describe but the the real straight up and down style strumming of chords is actually probably one of the best ways i've heard it described um it's 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 quite tricky i'm sure guitarists will know what i mean but it's a it is a tricky sort of style um he gained a reputation for his very unique psychedelic style of guitar playing which was down tuned to c uh which is quite quite a low tuning i mean you know that I suppose that is one of the things which is uh, similar to New Mel in that the tuning was quite similar. But the um, he had this convention of playing electric guitars through bass guitar amplifiers to create a bass-heavy sound for that whole desert rock Caius thing, um, which really created this very unique sound that uh, we were all used to hearing in that band. Um, another key member of uh, Caius, who later became a key member of Queens of the Stone Age, was Alfredo Hernandez, who would replace original Caius drummer Brant Bjork on the eve of the release of Caius's third full-length album, Welcome to Sky Valley. Uh, four years later, Hernandez would play a vital role in the formation of Queens of the Stone Age. Uh, with Caius's final album, And the Circus Leaves Town, it can almost be seen as a sort of passing of the torch from Caius to Queens of the Stone Age, especially considering that the lineup of that album consisted of two of the three members that would be on Queens of the Stone Age's self-titled debut. Um, can you see that? I mean, I know I know for a fact, little spoiler alert, but And the Circus Leaves Town is your favourite Caius record, Steve. Would you agree with me that uh, Circus Lee's Town is the most Queens of the Stone Age Caius record? <laughs> yeah, I absolutely would. I think there's a lot of reasons for that, which I probably don't really want to go into at the moment. That's but fine. I would say, but I would say the the melody the 
the the the pop melodies on and the circus leaves town and i guess the catchiness of the circus leaves town and the instantaneousness of and the circus leaves town are things that i would much associate more closely with queens of stone age than i would something from blues from the red sun for example why don't i'm going to ask adam uh for his views on that and then if he steps on your toes for the ks one we can always cut him out <laughs> like the little bitches <laughs> okay, fair like the little bitches that we are um what do you think of that i mean do you agree that it's the most queens of the stone ag record uh, uh Caius record goodness me i'm gonna get so confused with yeah. this um yeah it's again it's uh, what we we're talking about i think there was a time towards the end of Caius, and it was uh I've, i mean i've whether it's fact or not, but I've read that it's one of the reasons why Nick Oliveri left Caius um, is they were going in a direction that he didn't particularly like. Um, he was very much more of a fan of that harder, punkier sound, um, which is why he left to go see dwarves, uh, see dwarves, join dwarves. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, again, it's there was that whole period towards the end of Caius. They were beginning to blow up um, and make a name for themselves on an international stage. Um, and it's because their sound was more palatable, probably, to a wider rock rock audience. Um, and then that's what Josh Homme wanted to discover. And um, I know you want to talk around like the split EP, um, Kai's mm-hmm, Queens yeah. of Stone Age split. And you can hear how similar those songs are. And uh, it, it bleeds across to Queens of Stone Age self-titled with... Songs like Spiders and Vinegaroons um, mm-hmm. and The Bronze, for example. Like The Bronze could have yep. been a Kaya song, easily. Yeah, easily, yeah. Well, that is, I mean, that Queens of the Stone Age Kaya split that you just mentioned is an even more pronounced symbolic passing of the torch, isn't it? I mean, it is the the middle point of the of that torch passing, if you will. Um, so let's just do a quick appraisal of the songs on that record. I only really want to talk about the Kaya songs on that record for the moment, um, just because the Queens of the Stone Age songs will actually come up a little bit later when we talk about the reissue. So let's just stick with um, Fat So Forget So, Fat So Forget So Phase 2, Flip the Phase, and black the uh, the cover of Black Sabbath's Into the Void. Um, thoughts on these songs in particular? Let's go to you, Steve. Oh, Into the Void's amazing. It's great. Like, I mean, it's it's an amazing... Like, Kaya's covering Black Sabbath. I don't think two things have ever fit each other like a glove so perfectly. I feel like Kaya's were absolutely made to cover Black Sabbath. And for particularly from to be covering a song like Into the Void, it just feels like this is the exact band that should be covering that exact point of Black Sabbath's career. Yeah. It, it's... It's, you know, it's not a huge stylistic detour um, from what Black Sabbath did on the original, but it doesn't straight. really need. Yeah, it's pretty straight, but then it doesn't really need to be because it just takes it out of that sort of um, that early hard rock Birmingham landscape and just dumps it in the desert and puts a bit more warmth and fuzz around it. It's yeah. fucking brilliant yeah. Yeah. and gives it John Garcia's, you know, uh, I would say John Garcia has just as recognisable a voice as Ozzy Osbourne. I think, um, yeah, I think I'd agree with that as well, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, two sort of similar vocalists who both, uh, or certainly stylistically fairly similar, but both with completely different 
voices, if that makes sense. Very recognisable voices. Um, uh, yeah, perfect. It, Fucking great. It's interesting, though, isn't it? Because um, I, I think uh, I, I'm often quite down on Aussies vocals i have to say but but listening to um this cover I, this isn't a diss on john garcia at all who i think is a wicked vocalist but listening to this cover does does make me appreciate ozzy's original vocal just that mm. little bit more um yeah i don't know if you feel that way as well adam or uh, are you a fan of this cover yeah yeah i totally agree with what steve said uh, it's probably one of the better black sabbath covers i've heard um yeah totally agree what steve said I really want to talk about, um, I mean, such a big part of the reason why I wanted to bring this split in is because for me personally, Fatso Forgetso and Fatso Forgetso Phase 2 may well be two of my favourite Caius songs in their entire discography. Um, and I think that is typical. It's typical of Caius for them to not have released those songs on... Um, on on a like full length studio album you know they're just on some split which became quite rare quite quickly um mm. interestingly i think anyone who's ever picked up a copy of the best of caius muchas gracias uh is uh, that that's the name of the best of not me just saying thank you uh <laughs> uh it will will know that again in typical caius fashion it's just stuffed with b-sides because caius b-sides were <sighs> often better than their a sides i don't know if that's something that both of you would agree with or not but i i, I think there's an argument for it i think they're an incredibly consistent band yeah that's what i would say some bands just write good songs all the time yeah. and have great b-sides oasis smashing pumpkins um nirvana and caius are one of them aren't they so yeah 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 agreed and again this that bleeds over to queens of the stone age you think about all the the b-sides that they've had for especially in the early in their career and um they'll either put them out they had uh what was that ep stone age complications that they released years later mm. and it was like five or six mm. random tracks rated r uh, again had uh, an additional ep songs for death had different uh, additional tracks depending on which country you brought it in so yeah again another consistent band like never write a bad song yeah 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 pretty much um about a month away from a US tour supporting their heroes, Monster Magnet, uh, Caius decided to split up. Um, there was no drama, no acrimosity. Uh, according to Joel McIver's brilliant biography on Queens of the Stone Age, uh, No One Knows, which I'll be quoting from a fair amount on, this, um, uh, on these two podcasts. Apparently the band had not argued, nor run out of money, nor been stabbed in the back by the industry. With everything going for them in true perverse desert style, they had simply got bored. It was just the right time, Homie said soberly. We made four records and we just wanted to have a good solid ending with a finishing point. We played for respect mostly. We deliberately sabotaged any chance at selling records or being famous. People dug that we were playing for music's sake. So, after the disillusion of Caius, Homie, as principal songwriter for Caius, was offered a record deal by Elektra, which he turned down. Um... Instead, he decided to release a short EP under the name Gamma Ray, which was released featuring Matt Cameron of Soundgarden and Pearl Jam, Van Connor from Screaming Trees and percussionist Victor Endrizzo. The EP contained three tracks, Gamma Ray, If Only Everything and Born to Hula. And once that was released, Homi moved to Seattle to get away from the music scene. Again from that No One Knows book, Homi said, I quit for a year. I needed a reason to put myself back in the fire. 
I felt like there were so many bands and, you know, in the days of like Hendrix and stuff that I grew up listening to, there weren't that many bands really. I felt like now that there's thousands of bands and what does it matter what I have to say and who cares? But then I realized after a year that it was necessary for me and it didn't matter if it was necessary for anyone else. I went to the one place where I knew music was dead, Seattle. Grunge was dead and if the semblance of any good band or any scene started, everyone in Seattle just killed it. They were trying to destroy everything. They hated everything. And I was like, perfect. So I went there not to play. I was trying to get off my record label, Electra. I had this plan to ask for a ridiculous amount of money to do demos, thinking they would just say, fuck this and write it off. And they didn't. Instead, they gave me the money. I thought, well, I'll sing and that'll get me kicked off. And it did. Um, so kind of interesting there that after the disillusion of Caius... Homie just didn't really want to do music at all by the sounds of it, really. Mm. Yeah, you can sort of understand it. I mean, I guess we will probably go into this at some point, but I always feel like a lot of people, um, if they're innovators of a certain style, which then becomes really, really popular, their natural inclination is to run as far away from it as possible. Um, I mean, John Lydon did Pill after the breakup of the Sex yeah. Pistols, which is very, very different. Um, Kurt Cobain quite literally decided to get away from grunge <laughs> in the most extreme way possible. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, there are, you know, Deftones, as soon as they got lumped in with new metal and that became a big thing, they ran as far away from it as they possibly could. By 1996, 1997, you know, Karma to Burn, Acrimony... Fu Manchu, Nebula, Spiritual Beggars, Orange Goblin, loads and loads of stoner rock had become a thing. You knew what the album covers looked like. You knew what the bands were going to look like. You knew what the guitar tone was going to sound like. It was just going to be another type of thing like Caius did. So to go from the desert to the reign of Seattle seems like a pretty, you know, sensible thing i mean it it doesn't seem like a sensible thing to do but it seems like someone who would want to get away from the thing the monster that they created that that is what they would do well especially also as well as as grunge was kind of dying around that time as well i mean 1996 Mm. uh soundgarden were a year away from splitting up Mm -hmm. um pearl jam had released no code which i think has been reappraised as a great record but definitely a record which was them getting as fully away from that grunge scene as they can yep. obviously nirvana were gone alice and chains alice and chains played their last shows yeah you know i mean i don't well we didn't know it was their last shows then but obviously oh their last shows was lane staley but you know yeah. yeah um so it totally makes sense to me i think i mean in terms of stoner rock as a broader kind of genre i always kind of maintained i never get i never got like into stoner rock in a hugely insane way because Caius were one of the first quote-unquote stoner acts that I uh, discovered. And really, I was just like, well, I think I've gone to the best first. And I just don't feel like I'm ever going to get anything better than that. In your estimation, uh, Adam, and Steve as well, um, 
was I right in that assessment or are there other bands that I should have like kind of checked out as a result or what what do you feel about that? No, I, I totally agree, to be honest. Uh, I was the same because what I discovered Queens of Stone Age when I was 15 and then sort of had to work backwards mm. um, and obviously mm. started with Caius because it seemed the sensible place. Mm. Yeah, and same. for me, I bar probably Nebula, um, yeah, maybe a couple of others. There's, there's even even the other stuff that's linked to Caius and the people that have gone on to do uh, other bands, so like Brant Bjork and everything. I haven't got into it as much. Like I've seen Brant Bjork mm-hmm. a million times, and it just hasn't clicked with me as much as Caius. The only time, obviously, is when Caius lives. Um, did those shows, um, obviously without mm-hmm. Josh, and mm-hmm. that's the only time that I've sort of gone, wow, this is. Like you say, this is the pinnacle of Sona Rock for me. Um, yeah, um, totally agree, to be honest. I, it's for, but even they, sorry sorry to interrupt, but even they, not to, um, I don't want to go into this too much, but uh, even they released a record under the name Vista Chino, which was, which was okay, uh, but not bad. But, you know, not, not incredible either. Certainly not up to the Kai standards. I think there were a cu- like a couple of really, really good songs on there. But, you know, it was very much a sort of six or seven out of ten, I would I would argue. Um, uh, I mean, I mean, I feel like we should give out, a, a, I've already sort of mentioned them, but a shout out to Monster Magnet, who were doing that kind of stoner thing, but in a very, very, very different way. Uh, sleep. sleep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, Jinx. Sleep. <laughs> uh yeah sleep um maybe fu manchu i i like it. there's a couple of i mean i was delighted that uh what's the california crossing by fu manchu was recently added to spotify and that's a that's a brilliant brilliant record mm. um is it as good as caius not really i mean the early clutch stuff yep. um sort of the, se- the self-titled clutch elephant riders is really good monster magnet i mean i do like the kind of power trip leather trouser stuff rather than the sort of spine of god psychedelic stuff personally but still good i mean you could go back you should at least i guess mention stuff like trouble and mm-hmm. uh saint vitus as definitely as influences in that kind of post sabbathy thing i mean orange goblin and electric wizard over here i think are definitely yeah yeah, a bit later but you know definitely good bands but for the main you know for the main really um and there's some bands in the last few years i think you could kind of put into stoner that i've liked like red fang um would be one that i think are really good um uncle acid and the deadbeats probably not quite the same sort of thing but they're good as well uh, but that whole thing of like Bolzer and Unida mm. and uh, I mean, I mentioned um, Karma to Burn. I mean, John Garcia appeared on half of these bloody bands, Slow Burn. Yeah, um, yeah he did. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It is, it's uh, spiritual um, beggars. Spiritual beggars. And there's, there's a, you know, there's a, there's a lot of them. Goat Snake. Mm. Um, that I think that first Goat Snake album is pretty good. You know, we mentioned Nebula, but. Yeah, there was there was a lot of them that I just felt were doing doing Caius, but not as good. I think that's the There's thing. Something about the tone of Josh's guitars on those Caius records, I think, that elevate them way above the sort of simple Sabbath. I don't. I don't. Worship. I don't want to labour this point too much because I'd like to get into it far more on the Kaya specials we do whenever we do it. But I do think that tuning down to C and putting a guitar through bass amps is is the absolute key 
for me. I mean, mm. there are other things that Josh hasn't revealed about his sound, um, which I'm sure go into it as well. But just, it's just, it's still, you put on a Caius record now and it still sounds like a unique sound. Like, mm. I don't think, I'm sure there must be other bands who have put electric guitars through bass guitar amps, but you don't hear it very often at all yeah you, it's very rare you only really hear it in like um there's a lot of like new two two, two pieces. pieces yeah you've taken the words out of my right. mouth there mm. um yeah a lot of two pieces do it now but that's because they're a two-piece they don't do it with an with a bassist and maybe a second guitarist as well so exactly mm. because because you're you're putting so much you're putting so many instruments into the low end and to make that work without it sounding like a big fat mush is extraordinarily difficult and i think that's half the genius of caius in the first place um but obviously uh homie wanted to get away from that completely and so so adapted a totally different style for queens of the stone age you know he was plugging into electric guitar amps again um still tuning down quite low but it was a very different kind of well the robot rock thing that he wanted to do uh which uh well we'll get into that a little bit later um Homie took a break for the remainder of 1995, uh, but agreed to join Screaming Trees as a storing, touring guitarist for their 1996 Lollapalooza shows. He enjoyed not being the centre of attention, basically. Um, he ended up playing with the band for almost two years. He said, It was great to be with the Trees and not having any responsibility. I was just there to add more sound to their live show. I played with them because I don't like to be caged in as a musician and have people expect me to play a certain way or a certain style. For me, it was a great experience to be out with them. It was perfect because it had nothing to do with Caius. It was about the subtle art of playing rhythm guitar and enjoying it. I found it really interesting because I would have thought that at this particular point in time, I would have thought that being in uh, being a part of the Screaming Trees touring um, uh, unit would have been quite difficult because they were at each other's throats. So that's certainly what we're mm. led to believe. Um, but yeah. he seemed to really, really, I think he just seemed so keen on not being the center of attention. He actually loved it. Um, thoughts on that? Well, I can understand that. I mean, I guess if you're the other guy from two brothers, who are probably arguing a lot. And then Mark Lanigan, who, as we've already discussed, uh, in previous podcasts is a, f- a fairly, you know, wild character. Um, probably quite a difficult man to, uh, to, to be around, but those four would have been at each other's throats and probably would have been at each other's throats for the last 10 years. So coming into that and just being like another guy who everyone can just be nice to, I probably actually, if you can ignore other people arguing, probably would have been fairly easy. Yeah. And, you know, Caius weren't, I mean, Annoyingly, I my friend went to see Screaming Trees on that tour, saw them at the now defunct Reading Alley Cat, which holds about 300 people, maybe 400 people. Remind me why you didn't go to this gig, Steve. <laughs> I can't remember now. I just didn't go. I just didn't go. Unbelievable. Poor work. Silly Poor boy. work. Didn't have any money. I was I was I was 16. I didn't I wasn't you know, now you just because we're big shots in the music industry. <laughs> um, because we get, just because we just click off to everything. Yeah, we just click our fingers and people put us on the guest list. Back then I had to go and get a train to Basingstoke, get a train to Reading, buy a ticket, queue up with everyone else. And I didn't even, I was 16. I just came out of school, couldn't mm. afford it. Mm. I had to pick and choose my gigs very carefully. Mm. Um, 
picked quite badly at that point. I was just like, no, I can't, I can't go. Um, gutted, but I'm sure it would have been amazing. Um, and little peek behind the curtain uh just before uh recording this podcast you uh you told me that back in 1997 you went to see corn at brixton academy rather than tall at the astoria yeah but corn and incubus so <laughs> a band you hate <laughs> yeah. so which somehow makes it worse um yeah yeah i did uh, silly boy um comments Mate, on adam, made a few oh, mistakes comments on Stephen being a fucking idiot adam uh yeah he's uh he's an idiot but interestingly that, <laughs> that kind of links in because scott Re- scott reader was playing uh with tool at the time was he on bass scott reed is that right? yeah. Yeah, no scott reader was played couldn't have yeah, been scott reader played uh bass with tool for for a while before um uh what's his name is now in tool J- justin yeah. justin was in the band by then because this is after Nema, enema came out so oh. um well i do i do i mean i know for a fact that scott has played with tool whether it was as a permanent sort of touring member or not i don't know but i do have a bootleg of tool covering demon cleaner with and, and bringing scott reader out um on bass i've heard of that as yeah. a thing yes it's great it's really good i'm sure you can find it on youtube um but um i mean the quality is not very good because it's recorded in fucking 1996 by some bootlegger but you know maynard james keenan doing demon cleaner yes please it's great yeah i need really to good. i need to listen to that good yeah, yeah, yeah. um but anyway um yeah i think josh would have been it's a, being the sort of hired hand guitarist in a, even if a band are about to split up it's got to be better than being... I mean, you know, because like, Caius weren't, weren't a big... when you, you know, they were a big deal in sort of cool underground circles while they were around, and they were sort of hyped quite a lot by the magazines, but I don't think they played a venue much bigger than... Not They didn't play huge venues over here, did they? They never um, got big. I am of the impression that the Borderline is the largest venue they played in London. I actually have a friend. Which is tiny. Yeah, I actually have mm. a friend who went to that show. Borderline at that time was about 400 cap, I think, maybe 500. But yes, I think, I think borderline was the largest show Caius ever played as i mentioned before homie suggested that he was going to help out screaming trees on tour for a while and then quit music and go back to school uh he said i was only going to go on for one tour i told them that i'll do Lollapalooza and then i'm going home to go back to school but then when i was driving the truck on on Lollapalooza, who's he chino moreno why does he keep saying back to school <laughs> and then he rapped this next bit i'm not gonna rap it but just imagine oh, him rapping this next bit. Uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> but then when I was driving the truck on Lollapalooza somewhere in New Mexico, I had an epiphany. Oh, Steve's got his head in his hands. Um, I was like, what am I doing going to school? Back to school. Who cares if there's too many bands? Who cares if no one else likes my music? That's what I hated about punk rock. Trying to anticipate what someone you don't know might think. That they theory. I dropped all that shit and left that attitude behind. It was a desert epiphany. The desert is a place where you see forever and you see forever and you feel small. It makes everything that really is important stick out and everything else is gone. Mountains in your life get shrunk down into molehills. So quite, um, I think quite appropriately, the seed for Queens of the Stone Age came through this desert epiphany and the seed that you know homie deciding that actually yes i do want to continue doing musical projects and being 
um, the creative catalyst for them rather than just being a touring musician. Uh, I think being out on the road with Screaming Trees did help him to do that. He just needed to recharge his batteries effectively, I think, by the sounds of it. Um, and during all this time, Homie had been quietly putting aside material, uh, perhaps with no real indication of how or even if it would ever be heard, but more for his own sake, you know, as a lot of musicians often do. But once he returned to California from Seattle, he'd recorded enough material for an entire album, as McIver notes in uh, No One Knows, music which would be simpler and more direct then, but just as gripping as the canon of Caius. The question was, what was he supposed to do with this wealth of new material? Uh, Well, a chance encounter with an old friend at South by Southwest in the second week of March 1997 provided some insight. From no one knows, in the next room was a chaotic gig from a band named Mondo Generator, which was the product of sometime dwarf Nick Nick Oliveri, now an ex-Caius alumnus of five years and counting. Homie was delighted to hear that his friend was nearby. I said to some friends, let's go see my friend Nick's band. We walk in and Nick is completely naked except for a pair of black Converse and black socks. I'm exchanging glances with Fredo, that's Alfredo Hernandez, and then Nick lights this piece of paper on fire, puts something in his mouth and turns around and blows fire right into the audience, right through all these record people. Uh, Then he throws the piece of paper that's on fire and it bounces off this guy's chest. I looked over at Fredo and I'm like, dude, I'm calling in Nick right now. Isn't it interesting that Olivieri was brought on for his manic behaviour, considering that he was also sort of kicked out of Queens of the Stone Age for the same sort of manic behaviour as well? Yes. Agreed. (laughs) That, That... That is the definition of irony, yes. <laughs> yeah, it is, isn't it, just <laughs> that, that is absolute, be careful what you wish for. Mm. Um, mm. That is that thing, what's going, I can't believe a leopard at my face, <laughs> says woman who voted for the leopards eating faces party. <laughs> <laughs> that is a superb way to describe it. <laughs> yeah i mean yeah it's kind of it's kind of crazy reading that story i was like wow like surely you should have known roughly what you were getting in for but um uh yeah um yeah i think i think there's whilst I'll, yeah i think sorry to follow on from that i think there's a quote no, from, no, no, please. yeah i think there's a quote from nick somewhere and i can't remember the exact quote and he said around being in queens of the stone age it was very much you've got to serve the band um and be part of that and if you step outside of that you're gone josh will literally get rid of you and that's essentially what happened to him in the end was <clears throat> he probably stepped slightly too over the line uh eventually well we know what happened but do you think it's a case that he stepped too far over the line because the line had come uh, had moved far further away from where queens of stone yeah. age and you know desert sessions and you know big generator parties out in the middle of the uh, of death valley were as opposed to you know reading festival and being at the q awards and you know playing with foo fighters and stuff like that and playing glastonbury you can't really behave in the way that nickel every behaved at the big day out for example you can't start fights with television can you renfrey <laughs> like it's all right it's all well and it's all well and good doing it uh you know out in the middle of nowhere um but when you start to become a, a proper band 
it's probably a lot harder to let people get away with that type of behavior but yeah it, go, it goes back to what i was saying before queens of stone age from the off was always josh homs thing and a lot of people when uh nico was kicked out were very much like oh you're kicking out the most important member and it's like well yes and no to a degree but it's always josh homs baby in fact uh, troy van lewin's been in the band now longer than nick ever was by quite some stretch so uh, mm-hmm. I, again it proves that point troy was that development from the rock and roll sound to what they are today which is verging on pop pop rock and uh, everything that josh Hom wants to discover and troy is happy to be a part of that so yeah the line mm. what you're saying steve is that yeah the line has moved and it always will do with queens of the stone age i think that's interesting though because certainly the perception i had for queens for so so long especially with all the interviews early early on i mean we'll get into like how the first album was recorded and all that sort of stuff and you know fun queens of the stone age fact nick oliveri doesn't actually play on this record um so you know but despite that certainly through all the press and stuff like that it always seemed to be homie and oliveri it always appeared to be their baby equally and i i don't disagree with what you're saying adam at all because i think later events made it quite clear that actually it kind of always was a hobby project specifically maybe it was more kind of like 51 percent, 49 percent um and then as as that line started moving and as the as the band needed to start maybe behaving in a slightly more appropriate way considering the stages that they were playing um i think yeah maybe those percentages kind of dropped a bit and then it became sort of you know 60 40 70 30 yada, 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 and, and then until it led to uh oliveri's dismissal but um yeah just just a sort of interesting i mean certainly an interesting story considering how you know it, it, it all ended up about six years later um mm. Whilst Oliveri obviously joined the project and ended up, ended up being a core member of the band until 2004, he didn't sign up there and then for reasons which haven't been explicitly revealed as far as I can tell. Um, I think it's probably due to Oliveri's prior commitments with Mondo Generator. Um, I don't know if you have anything to fill in with that, Adam. You're not sure. Okay. Um, in fact, the band's first official live appearance was on November the 20th, 1997 at the OK Hotel in Seattle, Washington with Matt Cameron on drums. Yes, please. Mike Johnson of Dinosaur Jr. on bass and John McBain of Monster Magnet on guitar. Um, just a quick set list uh, for you here, because I think this is very, very interesting. They played at that show. These aren't the droids you're looking for. Hell of a weird song to start with. Uh, the Bronze, How to Handle a Rope with Altered Lyrics, Walking on the Sidewalks. They played a Wellwater Conspiracy cover um, instrumentally called Teen Lamb Chop, Avon, and then Mexicola. Uh, which is a very interesting set, isn't it? Um, wow. Lots of B-sides in there. Uh, thoughts on that, guys? I, it's an interesting set list. It's an interesting lineup of people as well, isn't it? A great I lineup. mean, yeah, really, really good lineup. Um, you wonder, I mean, I do wonder with that cast of characters exactly what that sounded like because I don't, doesn't strike me that, I mean, that sounds much more like a band. I mean, I think, I guess what we'll talk about when we talk about the recording of the record and stuff and the fact that it is basically a drummer and then another bloke doing 
most of the rest of the record. And I think the songs sound like they've been composed, at least compositionally. Um, I think they sound like the relationship between a guitar player and a drummer, most of the songs on this record. Um, whereas I'm not sure that that line of a Queens of Stone Age that you've just spoken about would have made songs that sounded like this. Well, that's a super Without group. really knowing. Yeah, yeah. That, that's a super group right there, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, you know, members of uh, Soundgarden, Dinosaur Jr., Monster Magnet, and Caius. I mean, that's fucking great. Like, yeah, I'd want to hear that 100%. Mm. Um, thoughts on that set list, Adam? Yeah, yeah, I, I agree again. And it's it's just that whole, again, it's probably Josh Homme trying to find the sound of Queens of the Stone Age. And it was probably, it's, it sounds like a very sh- short set list. So it was probably just a big jam between between that, those, those lots, like the basis of ideas for songs that, then became the self-titled album and mm, mm. various other songs like b-sides and everything so it was probably just yeah find, finding his sound and uh, where he wanted queens to go i suppose i think it was uh i think it was relatively jammy there was i actually said that the, the, it was the the band's first official live appearance purely because they did actually uh make an appearance earlier that summer as queens of the stone age i believe um which was just more of an impromptu jam thing you know there isn't sort of a set list from it and i don't think it's like officially on setlist fm but i have read about that um so that was a, a, a thing as well um but that, this was the first time that they'd got together and played some semblance of songs at the very least mm. anyway um i mean i i've actually do you want me to go into the review that i've got of the first ever queens of stone age gig as is as we knew them at this time uh yes go on all right yeah because i've got a copy of kerrang here which i found from my little kerrang stash upstairs the issue 711 8th of august 1998 got brian molko from placebo on the front cover your mate renfrey my mate um yeah um in the review section next to reviews from candlebox who we've spoken about before (laughs) and slayer supported by polkas foil suicidal tendencies and infectious grooves would have been all right um there's a whole page which is dedicated to uh two days in the life of a gentleman called joshua sindel do you know joshua sindel he was a writer for kerrang bell he rings i'm I'm sure i've seen his byline yeah yeah Mm. i've seen his byline um so on the 23rd of july he went to the house of blues in los angeles to see clutch and he gave him five out of five so obviously feels like he's got pretty good taste but the yep. night before that just below that on the july the 22nd 1998 um he went to the caspar in san diego to watch queens of the stone age do their first ever gig as the band that so nick olivieri josh homie alfredo hernandez mm-hmm. um and i can read the entire three out of five review for you if you so wish please do or I'll, I'll skip out the support band um he says it's stoner rock history in the making on this summer evening in san diego sorry it's stoner rock history in the making on this summer evening in san diego tonight will mark the first appearance of the now permanent lineup of the new 
Queens of the Stone Age, and a passionate group of fans from all over the Western states have made the pilgrimage here. There are members of Fu Manchu and Nebula in attendance, each hoping to see Homi, bassist Nick Olivieri, and drummer Alfredo Hernandez, all ex-members of Caius, try to trap a little of that heavy, heavy Caius magic in the bottle once again. Um, then there's a review of the support band. Don't need to hear that. Earlier in the evening, Josh Homme had claimed that he'd never felt less nervous before a gig in his life. Now, as Queens of Stone Age takes the stage to ringing applause and shouts of Josh, Homme grins shyly and tries to live up to his past. The Queens begin with a song called Regular John, a massive, churning, low-slung roar of a tune. It's like an outtake from Sky Valley. Fans are wetting themselves in delight. Homme's lead vocals are light and high, a cross between John Garcia and Dave Grohl. Yet surprisingly, most of the band's new songs show influences of late 70s new wave pop as that by Devo and Gary Newman. After half an hour of such minimalist epics as you would only um, you would know and if only, there are a few expressions of disbelief in the audience and cries for Caius grow louder. But there will be no Caius songs played this evening. An hour later, when the Queen's End matters, the club is not as full as it was 60 minutes earlier. There was some very exciting, challenging music played here. It's just a pity it wasn't Caius, what Caius fans were expecting. Uh, and then it's got high point regular um sorry breathtaking open a regular john their most caius like moment low point the occasional melody free jams the verdict they're not caius you have been warned three out of five mm-hmm. it's that kind of um it's that kind of attitude of going in expecting something and being disappointed that you don't get what you're expecting and what you're wanting but that doesn't necessarily mean it's bad, doesn't it? I mean, you know, obviously I wasn't there, so I can't sort of turn around and go, oh, Joshua Sindel misscored it or anything like that. But certainly I don't think... I don't think going in to a Queens of the Stone Age show wanting or expecting Kaya songs is really the way to approach reviewing a show do you know what i mean i'm not this is i don't mean this as a slight on this on this review or anything like that but that's not really sort of well maybe i do a professional way to go about reviewing stuff is it um it's not i mean i think if you go to see the new band by three members of caius and it doesn't really sound like caius Mm. Um, I'm not saying that that's right or wrong to have expected them to sound like Caius, but I think at the very least, I think pointing out the audience reaction is, as yeah. he did yeah, 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 is yeah. fair enough. Absolutely. I think saying they are not Caius, just so you know, yeah. is fine. And if he didn't really enjoy Queens of Stone Age as much as he enjoyed Caius, you could, in the same way as when I go and watch Fever 333, I go, well, they're not, the, you know, they're not no. Let Live mm. and they're not... Um, uh, I was going to say the locust then, but I don't mean the locust. I mean the chariot. Yeah. Um, well, they're not the chariot. Mm. Um, you know, they're probably not trying to be. I mean, whether Joshua Sindel, I mean, it seems weird now to be looking at Queens of Stone Age and going, well, it's not Caius, is it? Because it's, of course yeah. it's not. We yeah. we know now, of course it's not. But at the time, would you have gone, you know, I like Stoner Rock and this isn't the, that, so I'm out. Yeah. Might have yeah. done, yeah. you know, I, but yeah, I find it quite hard to believe that when, you know, the, the songs that he's mentioned they were playing, I find it quite hard to believe that you wouldn't have enjoyed those songs. I mean, I don't have the whole set list here, but 
you know, first ever gig in front of people. Are they going to be perfect? I don't know. Three out of five. Mm. It's not. A, it's not a mauling, is it? It's not a mauling. It's no, just a misunderstanding. It's just a misunderstanding of of, of that band. Mm. And I guess when you first see it, and if you are entrenched in a real genuine love for stoner rock and stuff, you might go, "What's this?" Mm. I think that's only natural. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. Any thoughts on that review, Adam? No, uh, totally agree. I, th- I think that's what Queens of Stone Age always struggled with around the certainly self-titled and when they toured it afterwards. Um, there wasn't a massive amount of press around them, even though the fact that they'd all been in Caius and it's because people were still sticking them with that label and they, like you say, didn't want to almost accept that it was a new band and a new direction. And it was only until mm. Radar came came out that people really took notice of what they were doing um, for whatever reason. I just think, mm. like Steve said, uh, just people couldn't shake that Stoner Rock label from Josh Hobbs. And of, and of course, I mean... As brilliant as a name as Queens of the Stone Age is, you immediately get those connotations just from the name alone, don't you? So in a sense, you can't blame people, I don't think, really. I think I I, I understand Homie's frustration, but at the same time, I do think that at that time there was a sense of like, well, you've, you've half put it on yourself by just calling the band Queens of the Stone Age, you know? Um, but obviously, I, I you know... As as I've already mentioned, I think I think this self-titled Queens of the Stone Age album is the only album that I could honestly, hand on heart, describe as stoner rock. And even even then, yeah, it's still sure. it's still a fair. It's a, it's a, it's a hop and a skip away from what Caius were doing. I think. Mm. Um, mm. Um, so yeah. Um, the original choice of band name for uh, Queens of the Stone Age was uh, nowhere near as cool though still quite stoner rock vibe or maybe more of a space rock vibe I would say but Gamma Ray Um, but Mm. that had to be abandoned after another band with the same name asked him to drop it or face legal action now people assume that it must have been the German power metal outfit of the same name but this has never actually been confirmed by the Queens of the Stone Age camp but it seems fairly likely that it would have been them I think. Is there another band called Gamma Ray? I don't think Apparently there's fucking seven or eight. I looked it up. There's loads. Right. There's fucking loads of them. Um, but uh, but they're all like, bar, bar the German power metal band, they're all quite small. Um, so, you know, it, it almost certainly is the German. But I mean, I think they're the only band who would have bothered to write a letter saying, can you not? call your band this to be honest i don't yeah. think the other bands would have given a shit really um, it's good of queens of stone age to actually pay attention to that letter because presumably the german power metal band gamma ray have written that letter quite a few times and people just gone nah fuck off <laughs> well i guess so yeah maybe <laughs> maybe um but uh the person who actually came up with the queens of the stone age moniker was actually chris goss um so when uh he was recording chaos the chaos when he was recording chaos the producer would frequently refer to them jokingly as as queens of the stone age so i mean again it's kind of like well you're making a reference to your past and yet you you want people to not think about your past with your new project it's kind of a tricky one and this is why this is an interesting kind of um homie did want to be free of the music that he had written in the past but he still had a few loose ties to it i think Mm. it's fair to say you know Mm. 
If you, I mean, I still think if you're three members of Caius working with all the people that Caius used to work in and around in that yeah. scene, yeah. you're not going to get, it's not all going to be like gone in one fell swoop, is it? Yeah. It's yeah. just not. Yeah. You know. he, to- he totally achieved that later on on me, I think. And, and, and mm. to his credit, you know, he definitely, definitely achieved that. But for, for him, for it to, for him to expect it to happen overnight, I think was slightly naive really Mm -hmm. um the first queens of the stone age recorded output released to the general public was on a compilation titled burn one up music for stoners released by the dutch division of roadrunner records um from no one knows whilst it afforded a platform for a debut release burn one up also landed homie's band with the dreaded stoner rock label a tag which would weigh heavily on him in years to come i mean yeah putting your first ever recorded output on a stoner (laughs) you know yet again it's just like um however once the word stone and stoner had become disseminated and conflated the more the media assumed that homie et al were just another bunch of bong loving desert freaks perhaps justifiably given their past work in caius <laughs> if i had a choice i'd take that away homie said to the, the association stoner rock to me is like saying the crucial element is drugs and i don't believe that that's the case i'm not an aa guy or anything <laughs> no shit uh but at the same time i don't need any of that to make music Hopefully you can listen to the Queens when you're angry, mellow, happy, sad, running around town. It's user-friendly. That was my one thing with Caius as well, that I felt like we had to play heavy and that was it. With this, we should be able to play what we think is good. And again, fair play to him. I think I think he managed to, to do that, um, event, you know, eventually. Definitely escaped that tag eventually. Just took a little, little while. Um, the band contributed the song 18 AD to the compilation. I can't remember if I actually asked you guys to listen to this, but I'm assuming you know it, Adam. Do you know 18 AD, Steve? No, I don't. I okay. don't, I'm afraid. I'll just, I'll just go to you, Adam. Yeah. What do you think of 18 AD? 18 AD, yeah, brilliant song. I think I've seen it live before. Um, it's one of those songs that they used to occasionally drop in uh, in set lists. Yeah, it's... Uh, if you've heard the bronze, it's pretty similar to the bronze. Um, it's mm-hmm, that sort mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. that sort of ilk. Yeah, uh, Homie said that um, we happened to be in Amsterdam at the end of the Screaming Trees tour, and this one, this Burn One Up compilation came up. So we grabbed a couple of friends from the band Beaver and recorded a song. Uh, that was so easy and casual that we were like, "Well, maybe we should play these songs that I recorded before and turn it into a band." So all these all these elements were coming together and sort of persuading him that maybe turning queens of the stone age into a full-on project was a good idea um collaboration was always an important part of the early queens experience i think it has been throughout their career uh and it was also around this time that the first two volumes of desert sessions were recorded and released titled instrumental driving music for felons and status ship commander butchered respectively Uh, They were recorded between August 5th and 12th at Rancho de la Luna in Joshua Tree, California. Um, It featured Homie, John McBain, Fred Drake, Dave Catching, Ben Shepard, Brant Bjork, Alfredo Hernandez and Pete Stahl. Uh, Unlike all future Desert Session releases, none of the songs on Volume 1 and 2 would appear in a different form on future Queens of the Stone Age albums. However, Nova is also a Desert Session Volume 3 track. Um, It is exactly as Avon is on the first Queens of the Stone Age album, but it has different lyrics and it's sung by Pete Stahl. Pete Stahl, of course, is the vocalist for Scream, who was the first band that Dave Grohl ever played in. So many incestuous links. It's just crazy. It's just, I mean, that's just Queens of the Stone Age through and through. Um, 
uh, talking about Desert Sessions, uh, Joshua explained that it is just a musical experiment. Some musicians know each other, others don't. You sterilize them and mentally test them and then ship them out into the desert in wood crates and get them to play together and switch instruments and write songs on the spot. They don't have to go on tour and there are no obligations. It's really cool. When I see reviews of the CDs that we've released from those sessions, I laugh because it's not meant for any of that. It's purely for listening. It's also kind of like a recording school for me. I don't see why it should stop. There's an endless supply of cool musicians out there. If someone came up to me and said, do you want to show up for a weekend and play whatever instrument you want and whatever you want, I would like that. Hence the Desert Sessions. So let's go into the albums of the year in 1998. Um, as you remarked earlier, Steve, um, Queens of the Stone Age only appeared in, well, I think it only appeared in one of the lists that I'm going to talk about, but it's worth sort of talking about this period. Uh, so the Kerrang! albums of the year, we've got Monster Magnet Power Trip at number one, um, which is probably the closest, well, whilst that particular album isn't close to Queens of the Stone Age, it's probably the closest band to Queens of the Stone Age in this list, maybe with the exception of Mark Lanigan, who comes in a little bit later. Uh, then we have Mechanical Animals by Marilyn Manson at number two, System of a Down uh, self-titled album number three, Soulfly self-titled album number four, and then the Queens of the Stone Age album is at number five. Um, what do you think of that top five? It's good. It's really mm. good. Yeah. Um, I love Power Trip. I think it's great. I yeah. think Mechanical Animals is um the most unique Marilyn Manson album if Definitely. you like yeah. uh System of Down System of Down obviously I absolutely, absolutely love I think it's brilliant um Soulfly Soulfly oh what a beauty that is mm -hmm. that's a beauty of a record mm -hmm. um yeah and then Queens of Stone Age I mean arguably is probably the uh, could really be the second second out of those five arguably mm. or third 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 what are you saying? Um, system, Monster Magnet, Queens. Yeah. Mm, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Your thoughts on and that? And then probably Manson, Soulfly. Yeah, yeah, I think I'd agree with that. Your thoughts on that, Adam? Uh, as yeah. a top five? Yeah, uh, I'd obviously put Queens top, but <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> but yeah, uh, yeah, other than that, yeah, I'd put Monster Magnet probably second for me and so add yeah. third. So then number six, we have Scraps at Midnight by Mark Lanigan. Very nice. Uh, garbage version 2.0 at number seven, which is yeah. cool. Yeah, I'm up for that. Mm -hmm. uh, Hellbilly Deluxe by Rob Zombie at number eight. Yeah, that'll do. Yeah. Do you think that's too high? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> good singles, but as if that's a good album. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, it's, not a good al it's not a good album, is it? It's got some good songs in it, but it's not a good album. It's one of Rob Zombie's best. Well, okay, that's not exactly <laughs> difficult, is it? No, true. Has I mean, Rob has Rob Zombie got a good album? I think he's got good albums. I, I'm not sure if okay, he's got. Yeah, a you're right. I'm, probably, not, I'm not sure yeah. if he's got a classic album. I mean, I, there's no. an awful lot of people who would disagree with us and say Hellbilly Deluxe mm. is a classic through and through. Blah 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 yeah. blah blah. Um, and they, not, they they haven't heard Astro Creep 2000, well, have they? Which well. is far superior. I, cer I certainly prefer White Zombie to Rob Zombie, but um, mm. uh, I mean, Hellbilly Deluxe isn't even my favourite Rob Zombie record because I'm a controversial fuck. Um, but there you go. Well, it gets ridiculous after Rob Zombie, though, doesn't it? Really, really ridiculous. Oh now. goodness gracious me, it does. Cold, cold. 
That's the band How? Cold and their self-titled album Cold. Are you familiar with Cold, Adam? No, I'm not. So uh, a shite. They're sort of dry run stained, basically. <laughs> they? they were like sort of Fred Durst's first go at Puddle of Mud. I mean, I mean, I love stained. What are you talking about? Uh, I will listen to Cold yeah, straight after this. Boy. Mm. They opened. They did open for Limp Biscuit and Soulfly at the Astoria, didn't they? What was the song they had? I didn't know that. Yeah, I saw them, and yeah, yeah, like sort of. Uh, they were a, a, a sort of heavy grunge band. Um, not good. Not very good. Didn't they do a song called "Send in the Clowns"? Probably. Yeah. I only listened to um, to the. I bought the first album because it got five Ks in Kerrang. Here's an interesting fact about Cold. Um, Jonathan Seltzer from Metal Hammer actually got sacked from Metal Hammer for giving Cold's debut album zero out of ten because they went, well, you obviously doesn't, you obviously don't like metal then. Really? Are you allowed? Yeah. To, you're allowed to tell the story? Are you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. He says it all the time. Wow. Um, I've actually just got that album up here, Cold, Cold, My, and it's just made me remember that when our very, very first time Stegall got together, we covered the first song on Cold, Cold, Go Away. Go away, go away, go away. We covered that. Wow. Well, I can actually remember this. Yeah, there's a song in it called Everyone Dies, which is actually all right as well. A lyricist. Everyone dies, my friend. Come from outer space, falling down the human race. Remember that song? <laughs> no, thank fuck. Uh, <laughs> I am listening to Cold after scr- this, 100%. A lyricist on the same level as Chester Bennington, by the sounds of it. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. Scoot Award. Uh, they, 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 Scoot Award, was that his name? Scooter yeah, Award? Scooter. Yeah, it sounds like a Sesame Street character. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Not not a suicidal post grunge man. Just just to say as well, I just double checked this. There is there is a cold song called uh, "Send in the Clowns," and it's on their second album, which is called 13 Ways to Bleed on Stage." Yeah, and that's bad. That's when it went really bad. But it's not. I mean, ugh, let's not talk about cold anymore. <laughs> um, number ten, "Hope Is Important" by Idle World. That'll do. That's, that's a good record. Yeah, that's good. Uh, Nuclear Sounds by Ash. Underrated record. I'd I'd say. I quite like that record. By Ash. Silence, yes. Steve. Yes, <laughs> yeah. not, not, not the best, is it? Uh, oh, it's not their best. I just, I just think it's underrated. That's the sort. Not even there, but I said not the best. Oh, as okay. in, it's not that, not part of anything that would be considered the best of. I mean, I don't anything. think it. I don't think it should be in the top twenty in nineteen ninety eight. I just think it's an underrated no. record. Uh, Backyard Babies, Total Thirteen. Don't mind that. Okay, Nashville Pussy, Let Them Eat Pussy. Rubbish. Uh, probably the best Manic Street Preachers album. This is my truth. <laughs> tell me yours. Fuck's sake. <laughs> um, I just don't tolerate it because your children will be next, Steve. Uh, mm. Hello Nasty by Beastie Boys. Brilliant. Yeah, great. <laughs> Semi Detached by Therapy. Yes, please. Great album. Elephant Riders by Clutch. Yes, please. Great album. Against by Sepultura. Uh, it's actually not as bad as I remember it being. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's actually one of the better Derek Green albums, I think. Yeah, I'd agree. Okay. I'd agree with that. Right. Oh, okay. Mm. Okay. Fair enough. I've not I've, from I've, that pe- that kind of early period of Derek Green. I think stuff like when it got to like Raw Back and Dante Twenty Six or whatever it was. Nah. <laughs> 
without you, I'm nothing by placebo, which I think is aged far better than people probably expected placebo to mm-hmm. age at that point in time. Mm-hmm. And uh, the best band in the world, Yield by Pearl Jam. We all love Pearl Jam. We all agree on that, don't we? No. Yeah. <sighs> shush, shush, shush. Have you ever listened to Yield? You've, you've listened to Yield, haven't yeah. you, Adam? Yeah, I have. And it's not going to change my mind, unfortunately. What do you mean, not change your mind from what? From no to yes, or no to anywhere near yes of me liking them. Right, fuck it, let's get into this. Why the, what hell. is your fucking what? problem? I just don't like you absolute Pearl, cretin. I just don't like Pearl Jam, I'm sorry. Mm. <laughs> the what? disappointment on your face is, yeah. We're going to talk about... I don't understand, I don't understand that. Do you know, does it not compute? Does it not compute at all? No, I know. I, I understand all of the words individually that you're saying, but when they're put together as a sentence, I don't know what you mean. Especially as we're here talking about like Queens of Stone Age and really and rock music, and you're like, yeah, that's good. yeah, Ash is good. Uh, Nuclear Sounds by Ash. You're like, yeah, 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 fine. And then Yield, which is probably it, definitely in the top five best Pearl Jam albums. Most definitely. I mean, we, we will also be discussing... I mean, Stone Gossard has a very important part to play in the debut Queens of the Stone Age record as well, which we'll discuss in a bit. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, oh, come on, come on, Adam. You've never... Because you know that I'm I'm uh, a massive, massive Pearl Jam fan, I don't think you've ever actually spoken to me about this and said why you don't like them. Just just, just tell me why. Is it the Yarl? Is it the fact that you can't take brilliance uh, and compute it? What is it? <laughs> To be honest, I just don't think I've given mm. them uh, uh, a second chance. Um, but mm. I, d- I just can't get on with Eddie Vedder's voice. I'm sorry. It just, uh, it just, gr- it it, yeah, it just grates on me. Here he is. Mm. Sorry. Mm. Well, you're mm. grating on me, frankly. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, let's pop over to Metal Hammer, where the um, the first two are quite similar. We've got Monster Magnet again, Power Trip at number one, Marilyn Manson, Mechanical Ambers at number two. Yes, please. Pitshifter, www.pitshifter.com at number three. An album I'm very, very, very keen on, but I have to confess hasn't dated all that well, let's be honest. But at no. the time, fair play. No, I was going to say, great record back in the day. Absolutely. Uh, it is quite difficult to listen to now and not go, poor... Sounds old, doesn't it? But, you know, fine. (laughs) Are you familiar with Pitch Shifter, Adam? Yeah, love them. Brilliant. Good album. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is is a great record, but, you know, it does sound very 998. I mean, the the CD is a fucking floppy disk, for fuck's sake. Like, the the actual design of the CD is a floppy disk. I just just love (laughs) the fact they called it www.pitchshifter.com. It's just a fantastic album title. Especially because you don't need the www dot anymore. Yeah. Well, at least they didn't call it HTTP oh, uh, semicolon yeah. slash slash yeah. dot like, you know, geosites.net. Um, although that would have been quite catchy. Uh, Polkas, Greed, a uh, band that I know Who? you... Oh, Polkas, Polkas, Polkas. 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 Yeah. Polkas. Pol- yeah, Polkas. Pol- Polkas. Yeah. Polkas. Polkas. Yeah, yeah. It's not Polkas. Yeah, Polkas. Yeah. It's not Polkas. Polkas. It's Polkas. Mm, Polkas. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, that's a, uh, what a, that's a fucking great record. Oh, Polkas, I love Polkas. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I've not heard them, but I've heard <laughs> Polkas. So I've heard Greed by Polkas, and it's really good. Yeah, love me a bit of Polkas. Uh, you familiar you familiar with Polkas? Uh, I'm not familiar with uh, Polkas or Polkas, unfortunately. Steve is so angry with me at the moment. Um, How are you calling them Polkas? It's weird. <laughs> I'm just... Well, I'm just sort of making the sounds with my mouth and uh, it's coming out of my Stupid. face. Stupid. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Um, Diabolus and Musica by Slayer, probably the best Slayer album. I think everyone agrees with that. Definitely the worst Slayer album. Uh, All yeah. those people that are like, when Slayer never followed any trends, Slayer, oh yeah, okay, mm. put that on and tell mm. me that they didn't follow any trends. Mm. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, Obsolete by Fear Factory. Yes, please, that'll do. Um, decent probably a little bit of the same uh criticisms as pitch shifter i'd say maybe in that it does sound very of its time but you know a very good record yeah. um yeah. soulfly soulfly which we talked about pearl jam yield i mean the best band in the world we all agree with that backyard babies total 13 uh beastie boys hello nasty again the absolute manix 100 best manix preachers album this is my truth tell me yours can't think of any albums which would better it in their career um uh, this is a bit of you isn't it steve same difference yeah. by entombed delighted to see that we yeah. did that on a right no on a trade-off trade-off mm-hmm. uh very early on there was a controversy with that record wasn't there was yeah uh, yeah can you just go into that very quickly because i've forgotten it Why well they just made a sort of um uh like a kind of I was going to say post rock like po- sort of post metal album it's not really post metal it's more like a like an unsane noise rock record mm. they made like a kind of noise they, they, they stepped away from doing that kind of death and roll thing and nick anderson the drummer who was in the helicopters uh, left to do the helicopters full time and then they completely changed their sound for an album and everyone sort of just went oh you're shit now nick anderson's left but in actual fact um he would have been probably more likely to write that kind of stuff than the rest of the band mm. would have been you'd have thought but um I think it's a great record. I mean, I genuinely think it's a great record and I don't understand how... I can understand why metalheads are like, about it, but I kind of can't at the same time as well because it's just really, really good. I recall it's a great quite, record. Yeah, I recall really enjoying it from the trailer. That's wicked. I mean, it was a it, while ago, it, but yeah. It, it's a total, totally different album to every, anything else they've ever put out. Um, yeah. And that's that's good. Absolutely, I agree. Um, against by Sepultura... Uh, number 14, Anthrax, Volume 8, The Threat is Real. I don't think I've ever heard that Anthrax record. It's got, it's got um, uh, Inside Out on. Do you know that song? Where the, mm. It's got the, the video is the plot to... Um, what's the uh, the thing where the gremlin's on the wing of the plane? You know that old... Is it... Uh, I want to say... I'm going to say Sail of the Century, which is definitely not... Tales of the Unexpected... Yeah. Oh, the Twilight Zone. There's a Twilight Zone episode okay. where the gremlins, the guy sat on the plane and he looks out and he can see somebody, the gremlin pulling the plane apart. Oh, and okay. the video for Inside Out is is that okay. sort of done, but with John Bush. I thought you were talking about snakes on a plane for a second there. No, 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 not snakes mm. on a plane because that was after. It was after, yeah. Um, Do or Die by Dropkick Murphys. Uh, the best, the best Dropkick, the best Dropkick Murphys album. Is it? Yep, fair enough. Uh, Adam's nodding away there. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Yep, fair enough. Don't really know much Dropkick Murphys, I have to admit. It all sounds the same to me, but I quite like it. Good music to drink to. Semi-detached by Therapy, yes please. Garage Inc. by Metallica. 
Yeah. Brilliant. Very nice. Very nice. Love it. Um, Hellbilly Deluxe by Rob Zombie, probably in a far better place at number 18 there, um, I think. Um, Ocean Machine Although by... Ab- Go on. Oh, well, I can say above two things that are far better than it. Well, though, that's so. true. Yeah, Ocean Ocean Machine Biomech, which is the Devon Townsend record. We have actually covered this on a writer's mm-hmm. review at some point. It is yeah. brilliant. Uh, and yeah. Life Won't Wait by Rancid. Uh, mm-hmm. Have I heard that Rancid record? I can't remember, but it's, it's good. That it's one is the scar one it's the one they went the to scar jamaica one. To they're do. all bloody scary aren't they no well, <laughs> no not like not not like that though they're, okay. they're full-on reggae okay on that they went to jamaica to do it it's been basically cop- copied the clash okay like su- surprise okay yes yeah, surprise surprise <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um just for a bit of context and just for something to talk about something a bit different let's go into the enemy 1998 albums very quickly as well um because that is going to become super important in part two rated r um we have mercury rev deserter songs a band that everyone still continues to go on about in 2020 oh no wait a minute that was sarcasm uh any love for funnily mercury enough rev- can i just can i just say <laughs> That I tweeted about that two out of five tool gig earlier, and Simon Young tweeted me back and went, "Yeah, it was boring." I was there; it was the most boring gig I've ever seen. Right. And then I went, "Don't believe you," and he went, "It was nearly as boring as Mercury Rev." What a so they got brought up today. What? But that that made me go, "Well, then, then it wasn't the most boring gig, was it?" If you're saying it was nearly as boring as Mercury Rev, Mm. Mercury Rev was more boring. Hence. Never trust Simon Young. It's Simon Young cancelled. It's the moral of the story. Yeah, he is. Moral of the story. Um, I don't have an opinion one way or the other on Mercury Rev. Any opinions on Mercury Rev, guys? No. No. None at all. Adam? No, fair enough. Uh, Beastie Boys, Hello Nasty. Uh, Mm -hmm. Yes, please. Mutations by Beck. Uh, It's all right. Okay. Moon Safari by Air. They're French. Crap. (laughs) Because they're French. Um, no, awful, no, awful, just... awful man. Uh, Mezzanine by Massive Attack. Yes, please. Yeah. Sounds a little bit dated, but I still like it very, very much. Uh, either Great or, record. either or by Elliot Smith. That is a fantastic record. Yeah, um, you're an record. Elliot Smith fan, aren't you? This is Hardcore by Pulp, um, otherwise known as Sex, Death and the Infinite Void by Creeper. Hey, hey, little <laughs> joke hey. Um, I'm joking. Uh, that's That's probably my favourite Pulp record. I've, it's definitely the most interesting pulp record and the mm. classiest pulp record, isn't it? Yeah, outside of choice, but it probably is my favourite. Accelerator mm. by Royal Trucks. Never fucking heard of him. Mark Lanigan's big influence on him. We actually spoke about... Uh, we've just had a Rioters review go up for everyone for free um, about Bubblegum, which we did last year, and Mark Lanigan mentions Royal Trucks on that. I, I know Royal Trucks. Fair play. Okay. I've never really listened to them, but I'm okay. aware of them. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, the debut self-titled Jurassic 5 record. Um, one of the few hip-hop bands that I actually quite like. I saw them at Reading one year. Fucking and I was like, this is good. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that, that album's amazing. Yeah. It's a wicked album. Yeah, yeah. Adam nodding his head there, you Jurassic 5 fan. Yeah, 100%. Love them. 100%. Uh, like Weather by Leela. Leela? Leela? Leela. L-E-I-L-A. No. no. Polkass. polkas surprisingly aren't on this list um and neither are polkas um good morning spider by sparkle horse never really listened to sparkle horse any thoughts no nothing no uh the goodwill out by embrace no fucking (laughs) the things we make by (laughs) the things we make by six by seven no Mm -hmm. there's something going on by baby bird no uh, the boy with the Arab strap, Bell and Sebastian. I like a bit of Bell and Sebastian, yeah. personally. Lovely stuff. 
No. Quite tw- quite twee, aren't they? No, they're very twee. They're very, oh, they are twee as twee. Well, they're twee-er than a twee trick, mm. but... Yeah. If, mm. is, is this still Isabel Campbell days? That she Was she still in Bell and Sebastian then? Or was she in Bell and Sebastian? I believe so. Yeah. Mm. I believe so. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, they are quite... They are quite twee. But um, a little bit more of you, Steve. Boards of Canada, music has the right to children. Don't know how that works. Yeah, I li- sure. I like that. Cool. Um, Arab strap philophobia. Uh, not heard that Arab the, strap record. The, the, the fear of people called Phil. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> That's exactly right. Um, a band- Can't watch a Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. <laughs> <laughs> can't watch, can't watch, Phil, awful can't watch Phil Collins live. <laughs> no, and probably wouldn't want to either. Um, uh, a band called Quasi with their album featuring birds. Never heard of them. No, don't know. Uh, 1965 by the Afghan Wigs, a band that I really should check out more because I really like Greg Dilly, yeah. but I don't actually know that album, <laughs> if I'm honest. And probably the best album of 1998, You've Come a Long Way Baby by Fat Boy Slim. Sarcasm. <laughs> I actually uh, quite like that record. So. Really? Look at, look at the fact that the miseducation of lauren hill was two places below like some really crap records mm. i mean pretty pathetic yeah. list isn't it from enemy there i mean it's not a great it's not a great list and then you get right down there you can see bloody science fiction my uncle's at 38 yeah below th- the third eye foundation in kid loco because we all love them <laughs> um and then you've got Godspeed you Black Emperor and Fugazi below like Madonna and Catatonia. Yeah. yeah. Two Elliot Smith in there. Fine. Exo's not as good as um, either, either or. or. Um, and then at 50, Robbie Williams, I've been expecting you. Fucking do one. Rubbish. <laughs> and people wonder why we have a go at the enemy. Um, mm. I do think it's interesting, isn't it? How like there's a lot of like very up themselves people who are like, oh, Kerrang and Metal Hammer music like for for idiots or whatever. And yet if you look at those lists, I think, you know, there's certainly records in those Kerrang and lists and Metal Hammer lists that haven't dated well. But the enemy list, I'd say most of those albums are from bands that people either A, haven't heard of in 2020, or B, could not give a flying fuck about. And I think that says yep. a lot. So That's true. Fuck you, enemy. Um, so the Queens of the Stone Age self-titled record was recorded in 18 days between the 3rd and the 21st of April 1998 and released on the 6th of October 1998 on Stone Gossard and Regan Hager's label Loose Groove Records. Oh, Stone Gossard, how I love thee so what a wonderful band he is in. Um, Pearl Jam, the librarian looking member of the band because librarians are cool and rock as fuck. Who, who wouldn't like Pearl Jam? A, a total idiot, I would assume. The only, the only kind of person who wouldn't like Pearl Jam is the sort of person that you couldn't trust. You certainly couldn't trust them with their music opinion. And I certainly wouldn't be subscribing to their uh, podcast, Audience Please podcast at any time or point in the future whatsoever. <laughs> Thanks for the advert. Anything to say on that, Adam? Yeah, thanks for the advert, mate. (laughs) That's all right. Um, I just just don't understand you sometimes. You just just make me very upset. (laughs) A vinyl version followed in November 1998, a relatively unorthodox move for 1998 when vinyl was very much out of fashion. Um, Mm. Did you have any vinyl records in uh, 1998, Steve, that weren't nicked from your dad? Well, they weren't 
we've got bad batman by prince oh of course of course as, as has <laughs> Still been dis- do. as has been discussed on the popular website wikipedia and tragically yeah. tragically taken down i, I did actually buy a copy of um no place uh, a limited uh edition of no place to hide um on white vinyl right. because it was numbered and i thought it might be worth something one day and i think i can now give up and admit that it's not going to be <laughs> Tw- well, tw- 23 years later no, i don't think it is i think the only things i would have had would have been um pearl jam 10 singles because uh because obviously Pearl Jam was so ahead of the curve and could see the vinyl boom coming back because they're fucking geniuses and anyone who disagreed would be a moron. Um, but the um, the vinyl version of the Queens of the Stone Age record featured a different cover be- depicting a half-naked Barbarella-type figure. Uh, and it is extraordinarily rare. There are three pressings, one in black, green, and one in orange. Let's just start that again. There are three pressings, one in black, one in green, one in orange. Not one in black, green. That would be silly. Uh, Plus, there's a blue wax version of just 198 copies pressed. Bit of a weird uh, number, unless they pressed uh, 200 copies and just kept two for themselves, I'm not sure. Uh, But they were pressed by the band themselves as an official bootleg to sell on tour. Adam, I know that you um, do sometimes go on to uh, Discog sites or eBay sites or whatever and try and pick up, spend too much money on very, very rare memorabilia and merch. Have you ever um, tried to get hold of this particular version of this record? Can you confirm that it is indeed extremely rare? Uh, yeah, so it's the only album I don't own on record, either a reissue or a, an original. And yeah, it's mm, either either point. very hard to get hold of or it's very, very expensive. So there's a guy I know, um, Chris Inman, uh, if he's listening to this, um he is known as quats collector on instagram and he is a hardcore collector of everything queens of stone age from music boxes to nug jars to t-shirts to all, all kinds of stuff um mm-hmm. and i think he managed to pick it up and it cost him a lot of money <laughs> to say the least um i don't know how much it goes for now but um yeah it's very very hard to get hold of I'm actually. Gonna- I have to say as well, they're not really looking at the original release cover. Uh, if they wanted to get away from the Stoner Rock tag, they're not really helping themselves with that cover, are no, they? No, no. Which not- is as Stoner Rock as anything has ever been. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I mean, as I say, the vinyl, the vinyl cover is a kind of space rock Barbarella type lady with her boobs out and then the uh the the cd version is uh, a sort of uh a pin-up woman from well it's actually from, taken from a 1972 book the pin-up a modest history by mark garber and it's sort of a, a i think it's a lady about to take her underwear off uh sexy sexy times it looks a little bit like have you seen the front cover for if you've seen the front cover for a morica by black crows it's that zoomed out isn't it yeah, a little bit, but without the pubes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, <clears throat> I've just had a quick look on Discogs for Man, the Man's Ruin uh, edition of Queens of the Stone Age here. Um, there was a copy last sold on the 5th of July, 2020. We're recording this on the 24th of August. Um, the lowest it appears to have gone for is £198.49. 
the median is £312.94 and the highest it's ever gone for is 350 quid. So yeah, it's quite a lot of money that, isn't it? Uh, uh, yeah, lots of money. And there is not mm. a copy. I mean, someone's trying to sell one for €700. Euro. Good luck, mate. Although apparently that's mint, but you know, from Sweden. He's only got two ratings. Don't don't buy from him. I um, mean, mate. To yeah. be to be fair, if the Stegel CD is worth ninety nine quid, <laughs> amazingly, yes, it is. Amazingly, yeah. Then yeah, yeah. I would say you could probably afford to spend seven hundred quid on no, the Queens of the Stone Age album. <laughs> um, so um, Queens of the Stone Age sort of went on to the Loose Groove uh, Records label after seeing. After uh, Pearl Jam guitarist Stone Gossard, probably one of the most respected. Uh, I think that joke's got to got to go now. <laughs> no, I'm not being funny. The good thing, the thing about is to know when to when to drop the joke. And I think you know I'm not saying podcast anymore, am I? So let's. <laughs> Adam's our guest. Be nice to him. All right. It's fine. I'm sorry, it's fine. Adam. I'm it's sorry, fine, Stephen. I'm sorry you have to put up yeah. with this week in, week out. I only have to do. <laughs> I'm not, I only I'm have to deal with it occasionally when I. Uh, I'm not vaguely sorry. I'm not vaguely sorry. <laughs> um, so after seeing Queens of the Stone Age at a local gig, Pearl Jam guitarist Stone Gossard offered Homie a deal with his small label Loose Groove. Uh, the Queens were delighted and relieved, as Homie explained. We weren't looking to be on a major label because we wanted it to be kind of casual and art related. They let us do whatever we want. With Loose Groove, we don't have to sell a million records or have that weird pressure. The majors play games and we play music. It feels better to be a big fish in a small pond. We're not in a rush. We just want to do some cool stuff and not get fucked with. Fair fucking play. Um, some people have a misconception that uh, Nick Oliveri is plays along the self-titled Queens of the Stone Age record, which, as I mentioned before, is not actually the case. It's compounded further by the fact that he is actually on the back cover photo alongside Homie and Hernandez. Um, but in fact, the majority of the bass duties on this album are handled by Homie, albeit under the pseudonym Carlo Von Sexron. Hmm. Mm. sounds like you had something to say about that steve well it's just a funny little pseudonym isn't it it's a funny little pseudonym isn't it if if i had to come up with a pseudonym uh, mine would be pseudonym Mm, you have made that joke before i mean you're having a go at me for making the pearl jam joke but i think i made it on the recording of this last time that no one's heard (laughs) you've definitely you've definitely you've definitely made it on a show before but that's fine ah shit (laughs) (laughs) all right if i I was gonna have to have a nom de guerre it would be nom (laughs) norman de guerre (laughs) that's why he's the ex-comedian nom de guerre yeah so there you go you saved it saved it oh yeah that was brilliant yeah uh fantastic <laughs> those subscribers have come crawling back um however uh tech technically nick oliveri actually is on the band's debut album he just doesn't bloody play on it does he uh because he appears on the album's closing moments in a recorded answering machine message to homie in which he agrees to join the band so just to clear up that confusion, despite Oliveri appearing on the back cover of the record, he isn't actually on the album except for the moment when he is, if that makes sense. Yes. <laughs> 
keep up, Steve. Um, Alfredo Hernandez played drums whilst Chris Goss played bass and sang backing vocals on You Would Know and Give the Mule What He Wants. All the songs were recorded at Monkey Studios in Palm Desert, California, except for I Was a Teenage Hand Model, which was recorded at Rancho de la Luna in Joshua Tree, California. We've mentioned that already. Um because that's where the desert sessions were recorded. I think all of the desert sessions were recorded at the Ranch de la Luna. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's that's correct. Yes, you're nodding along there. Um, And it was uh, the studio's personnel were contributing as performers to that particular song. That's the last song on the record. Studio owner Fred Drake sang and played drums. Co-owner Dave Catching played percussion. And sound engineer Patrick Hutch Hutchinson, who uh, joined the band later on around the Rated R sort of tour, uh, played piano as well. Former Dinosaur Junior bassist Mike Johnson is cre- credited with Sofa on the track. Adam, you had an interesting theory about this, didn't you? Yeah, so um, I was listening to it just before we started recording and there is um, a slight tapping. So it's uh, the tune sort of goes... And in the background, you can hear like a very <laughs> slight tapping. Um, I think it's mm. my theory is it's Mike Johnson tapping the sofa and they've mic'd it up because that's the crazy shit they would do at Rancho de la Luna. So that's yeah, that's my yeah. theory. It's a very like any it feels like anything recorded at Rancho de la Luna kind of has a very kind of experimental let's just try this kind of vibe um we're gonna smoke 10 spliffs before we actually start recording kind of you know lazy hazy oh there's a lot of smoke in the air where did this come from kind of vibe which sounds like a lot of fun i gotta admit um so uh yeah i i wouldn't be surprised at all if that's the case um homie reportedly asked screaming trees vocalist mark lanigan to appear on the record but he was unable due to other commitments probably um due to him releasing scraps at midnight i would have thought at that point Mm. but never fear homie mark lanigan will appear on one of your records soon uh so don't worry about it it's all good so queens of the stone aj good album favorite tracks ladies and gents no ladies just gents (laughs) (laughs) fair enough um uh well I mean, I'm going to take it straight away, probably as the... Well, it's not my pick, and I'm not the super fan, so well, I'm going to go I with the... Ob- I, I know I'm happy to go with the obvious and say regular John yes, is please. fucking brilliant. Yes. And the extended um, version that they were doing live around this time, probably bleeding into the sort of rated R um, territory, yes. was awesome. Yes. Fucking awesome. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, it's, a, it's a great song. It is... The kind of um, the one that's got the it's the only song that is credited as not being written by either just Josh on his own or with Josh and Alfredo together. Uh, John McBain, who we've spoken about already, is credited as a writer on the song. And, you know, I think that thing about it being the most Caiusy thing, the most Caiusy thing that's ever appeared on the Queen's of Stone Age album, maybe. There's a Gardenia feel to it, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is controversial. I actually think it's better than, than Gardenia. It is great. I'm not that upset about that. It's that good. I mean, a lot of Caius fans would be, but but I, I love Gardenia, but but I just think... I, Gardenia feel Regular John feels like Gardenia, but done in three and a half minutes. Like, as powerful to me, if not mm. more so but just just yeah popped up a bit and some people are like oh it's popped up a bit it's not as good but no actually it, it's just it's just shorter and fatter and punchier i just i love it i think anyone who can start an album on 
the same chord, a very simple, powerful and elegant C5 power chord, I, I believe it is, without changing it for 50, 58 seconds and have it still sound fresh and exciting like 22 years later. I mean, that's a really brave way to start a debut album. Um, mm. and, and, you know, Oasis tried a similar trick, didn't they? On um, Go Let It Out, the second song from their fourth studio album, Standing on the Shoulders of Giants, which we've also discussed uh, on the Ryan Tears mm-hmm. Review, Steve, where the eager, maniacal Mancunians play the rather dour, monotonous strains of an A7 chord for just 26 seconds, which is almost half the time of the Queens of the Stone Age song. And uh, in a pleasing bit of numerical symmetry, Go Let It Out has been objectively proven to be 26 times worse than regular, John. So there you go. <laughs> bit, of, um, bit of fun for the math rock nerds out yeah. there, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, I mean, I think, I think for me, you know, if you compare those two songs, it, it just goes, they're using sort of the same technique in a sense, but it just goes to show that Josh Homme is a much, much better songwriter than Noel Gallagher. And mm. objectively so, in my opinion. Um, regular John, Adam? Yeah, regular John's brilliant. Uh, my favourite would probably be Avon. Um, purely because I've seen it live loads again, uh, the same as regular John. Um, obviously, they've got that mini drums on on the record. It's like a mini drum solo almost. Um, mm. But obviously, when I've seen them with Joey Castillo, uh, I know Grohl mm. did it, and... Th- uh, John Theodore, they would do like a much longer drum solo. Um, mm. It's very groove orientated. It's not as well. like that whole song's. It's so groove. Yeah, and yeah. I, Sorry. I love that. Mm. I love that. The more groovy sort of Queen songs. It's not often you hear a drum solo on record and go, "Yes, yeah, that that should stay." It's it's but it's, so, the, it's so short and succinct. It's just it just yeah. hits you in the face and it stops and then the song kicks in again and i love that where yeah. it just goes crap and then just a pause yeah and it starts again yeah it's under 30 seconds mm. long but it's just it's it's brilliant you know and like i don't know old hands will go like oh moby dick blah 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 but like you know i love john bonham but no moby dick is too fucking long and doesn't need to be on that record <laughs> you know but but this that drum part that hernandez does on that song if it wasn't in it i would be distraught you know it, 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 it it's what i was saying about this feels like a guitarist and a drum like these songs have been composed with the drummer and the guitarist yeah. in mind and i think one of the things we said before when we were talking about this album was that doesn't mean it doesn't sound like a band mm. and it still does sound like a band and which is i think it's kind of ironic considering it's not really, is it? At this point, where these songs are being put together, it's actually not a band. And right. I, it's pretty amazing that they can make it seem so seamless and live sounding and that everything's being served so well. I mean, it's a fairly, I mean, certainly by Queen standards, it's probably the most minimalist sounding record that they've ever done. Yeah. Um, but it still feels, uh, it still feels big and fat. And it feels big and fat whilst also sounding wiry yeah. as well. I mean, all that kind of the comparisons to new and can and that kind of stuff, like that's definitely in there. Um, and it's, I, I mean, I was about to say when we we're talking about regular John, I think the thing for me when I first heard this record that made me go, oh, they're not just another sort of stoner rock band was actually 
the the tautness of the guitars which considering how low down josh tunes is pretty incredible yep. that he manages to keep a grip on those riffs to with such precision and also his vocals which light and airy as they said in the kerrang um feature is not what you would expect from stoner rock at all every single stoner rock vocalist came in going yeah, 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 doing all that and josh homs got this kind of throaty this kind of breathier area register and you know it's just it's just different hmm. and the fact that they were like oh, these are little differences and we can make them humongous differences um that's what I think makes this album really, really cool is those little differences that that you that you can recognise and see them and now look back on and see them, how they swelled into turning Queens of Stone Age into a, a really, really unique band. Yeah. I, yeah, just to follow on from that, Steve, it's, um, he did actually ask Mark Lanigan originally uh, if he wanted to be a vocalist for this project from, from the off. Um, and obviously Josh Homme, yeah like you say his falsetto vocals hadn't really been seen in this area of rock music before and it was really refreshing to hear i definitely think his vocals get better over time i think he's still finding his voice on this record um but yeah he's he's damn brave to do it um just something else what you mentioned obviously we've mentioned like the drums and guitar obviously hom played a lot of uh bass on this and his way of playing bass is also very interesting because he um, played a bit of bass on Lullabies to Paralyze later on. But um, there's the video of them, him, Trent Reznor and Dave Grohl on Sound City um, years, years, mm, that's years, amazing. years later. And watching mm. Josh Homme, the way he plays bass in that video. And then you think about this record, you can almost see him playing these bass riffs um he's got a very it goes back to what we're talking about with his guitar style he's got a very individual style for playing instruments um i can't really explain it but it's got a very very individual Mm. style yeah that's brilliant that clip it's quite difficult to concentrate on josh uh whilst trent Reznor sat there making it go from being like these two a drummer a drummer and a bass player trying to figure something out and then trent Reznor just turns it into an actual song um but we'll talk about Trent Reznor another day. I was yeah. about to go into, ain't Trent Reznor brilliant? Yeah, obviously, no, is. we'll do that another is, day. Though. I mean, anyone who hasn't seen that clip that we're talking about, it is on the Sound City film, isn't it? It's, yeah. yeah, it is yeah. Sound City, isn't it? It's, it's, mm. it's fantastic. It's probably the highlight of the film, to be honest. Um, I think it is. And yeah, one, of the, one of the best songs on that Sound City album that accompanied it as well, yeah. I think. It's called, Man- um, it's called Mantra, I think. Mantra. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. It's a great song. Great song. But it's funny like, when talking about Josh's vocals as well, is that one of the things that I remember, I think it might have been a Kerrang! review saying uh, when they played live and they had Lanigan with them and they had Dave Grohl on drums, is that they were saying what we, one of the things that they used as a criticism was that they're saying 80% of the set is performed by the third best vocalist in the, in the band. Mm. Um, now, uh, it, it, I mean, you're not going to get me turning around to say that Josh is a better vocalist than Mark Lanigan. Absolutely not. Um, but I think by that, even by that point, like you say, his vocals will come on a lot. And by that point, is Dave Grohl a great vocalist? He's all right. But I think he's he's far more straightforward a vocalist uh, than Josh Homme, I think. 
I, 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 I personally, I mean, I know I'm a bigger Foo Fighters fan than you anyway, Steve, but I personally put Homi and, and Grohl on a similar level in terms of vocalists, mm. in terms of vocals. There's things that Grohl can do that Homi can't and vice versa. You know, I don't think Homi can scream in the way that Grohl can scream. And Grohl's got a great scream on him. Yeah, I've, you know, I've, whether, yeah, you, whether you like yeah. that bad or not. I was, yeah, I was about yeah. to say that um, you took the words out of my mouth. Um, there is a quote somewhere where Josh... And again, it goes back to why he tried to get Lanningon on board very early on is because he can't scream. Um, and that's maybe why he got Nico on board as well. Um, right. He, he, I don't think there is a single Queens of Stone Age or otherwise song uh, or vocal line with Josh screaming. It just never happens. It's not his style, is it? No. He's too loose and... Not, not his style. And it also, you think, well... <laughs> There's a definitely a um, a lesson in there for bands who want to get big, who want to increase their profile. People don't like screaming, and and Queen of Stone Age were for years and years. I mean, you know, calling them a heavy metal band that like the indie press did around two thousand two thousand one was Ironic. fucking stupid. Yeah, awful. But they were the, the the heavy metal band that it was all right to like. And I think probably a part of that was the fact that they had a you know a, a singer an actual singer well it's this uh it's this marriage of the heavy guitars and the falsetto vocals it's this marriage of the male and the feminine isn't it you know the masculine and the feminine and bringing those two elements together and uh yeah disparate elements bringing them together and making something better as a result of it you know i i I totally agree with everything you said adam about um how homie's vocals became better later on um but i do really love his vocals on this record in in a weird way he you can tell that he's not quite sure of himself and the the uh leaps and bounds that he makes as a vocalist um just between this record and rated r i think actually are absolutely massive massive um similar i would say to the uh leaps and bounds dave grold made between foo fighters and the color and the shape Mm. i mean there's many comparisons with um that self-titled foo fighters record and the self-titled queens of the stone age record in that predominantly they were recorded by one person. Um, on Foo Fighters, you've got Greg Dilly uh, popping up on a couple of. Or is it just? Oh no, it's just exhausted, isn't it? The Greg Dilly. Yeah, it's just exhausted. I, I think now. Yeah, 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 yeah. But um, you know, and obviously you've got uh, Alfredo Hernandez uh, doing drums on this one, but predominantly it was you know one person doing everything on this record. And I know we've spoken about this a little bit already, but just the fact that it does sound like a band in a room and it does sound so organic and it sounds so just in your face and just it i I think i think it's a really good lesson for a lot of bands today who are using digital recording and digital processes and and layering things on top of each other you can sound like a real band in a room um there's there's no excuse really like records like Foo Fighters and Queens of the Stone Age prove that it is possible to do it you know yeah um Greg Dully played guitar on Ecstatic on the first Foo Fighters album by the way exhausted Ecstatic it's easy to yeah but fair enough yeah 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 Yeah, there we go yeah um other songs that uh people want to mention on this record there's no singles on this record which is why I'm kind of opening it up to you two really in terms of what Um, we talk about since we've just been talking about bass, I think walking on the sidewalks is probably worth talking about because that's for me the best bit of bass 
um, on the record. It's one of the few times where that thing that I said about it being written for a guitarist, but the, the mind of a guitarist and a drummer writing these songs is probably not accurate. I think that's wicked. Um, it's long as it's one of the longer ones on it. It's one of the few times where it goes into, uh, again, I suppose, more traditional stoner rock territories, but it is a different sort of sounding song mm. to the Kiasi stuff. Yes. It's just that lumbering bass is so wicked, I think. Yeah. It's the robot rock thing, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. I, I, Go on, yeah, I love that song. I made a load of notes about that song, actually. Um, one of the things oh. around um, like Josh Homme's vocals on this, he um, use that, uh, uses that sort of haunting uh whoa um in his vocal lines which he still uses today he actually appeared on uh, yeah yeah he yeah, appeared on yeah. like run the jewels four um and he does pretty much yes. the same mm. thing on that track that he's on i can't remember the name of the track um the, the mastodon the capillion capillion crescent whichever mastodon song he appears on on blood mountain has that yeah, same yeah, whoa yeah. thing it's as well yeah yeah, 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 yeah. very similar thing and also, interestingly, um, with the lyrics on Walking on the Sidewalks, he uh, uses the lyric Drink Wine and Screw, which is repeated in Fairweather Friends and Broken Box. So he he mirrors that lyric twice more uh, later on in their disco- discography. So uh, that would be an interesting yeah. fact to throw in there. That is an interesting fact and something I've never Didn't actually picked up on. Um, maybe it's a family motto of Homies. <laughs> 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 Sounds like it could be uh i didn't know that that's that's very fascinating i knew we got you on for some reason even <laughs> though you oh no i'm not allowed to make that joke all right uh so um next uh any any other songs that we want to talk about specifically uh uh mexico is probably worth talking yeah, about isn't it? Yes, I did, it is i did absolutely i did name my uh band at college after mexico so yeah definitely worth mentioning <laughs> uh do you want to do you want to do a shout out for your band mexicola uh, right now is there anywhere where we can hear mexicola stuff you might you might be able to find it on myspace uh i think but oh. but, but please don't that's why um myspace deleted all their stuff isn't it because they wanted to get rid of mexicola specifically <laughs> yeah yeah specifically that yeah <laughs> um uh, Mex- Mexicola has that amazing lumbering riff, which uh, I think heralds basically one of the best records on uh, best, best songs on the record. Um, it's mm. certainly a fan favourite, isn't it? I think that's fair to say, Adam. Yeah. Um, Josh always claimed that Mexicola was about being arrested in Mexico. Apparently, um, probably true. Uh, but it's also the name of a drink as well. I found out. Uh, thoughts on Mexicola, Steve? Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's. Uh, I mean, you've sort of said it all. I think it's. Um, it surely were they to be releasing singles, I would feel like that would have been surely yeah. one of one of the singles. Surely, you'd think, wouldn't you? I think so, and I also think it brilliantly sums up that robot rock thing that we've mentioned a few times on the record. But pl- it's a very difficult balance that this record manages to achieve of having that staccato robot rock thing but also sounding like it's played by human beings sort of what i was talking about with the analog stuff like a few minutes ago but it feel Mm. it feels like that it's a bunch of people sitting in a room together and playing it even though of course it isn't like it can't be that but it does feel like that and mexicola is just a brilliant brilliant example of that might even potentially be the best example of the record on the record of that um 
yeah, amazing, amazing, amazing song. I want to point out If Only, um, If Only, <laughs> for the uh, guitar solo. Uh, a <laughs> lot of smirking going on here. I don't know. Come on, guys. Uh, is this mic on? Come on. Um, uh, if Only for the uh, just brilliant, brilliant guitar solo, the, that one-note guitar solo thing that comes in, um, mm. which, again, is just doing so much with so little um kind of the anti steve i approach to guitar solo playing the, the the anti kind of uh slash but then or anything like that but then it just gives it so much more character and just as a songwriting choice i think it's really brave and really cool to do something like that um and if only it's just a great use of the falsetto homie voice that we would uh, hear a lot of later especially in the chorus um yeah if only is a massive 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 highlight for me uh anything else yeah, that, great song. anything else we want to go into before we go into the critical reception of the record no. um i'm happy to move no, on just on if only it's a it's uh i don't know if it was on the re reissue or whether it's on the original as well but it's definitely a headphone song so when that solo kicks in mm. you've got the solo solo in yeah. the left ear um and it just mm. really dra- mm. like you say mm. really really draws that solo out um i think it really yeah, it's brilliant. Totally agreed. Okay, so Queens of the Stone Age received generally positive reviews from critics. Writing for NME reviewer Kitty Empire scored it 8 out of 10, comparing it to Caius and saying that for all its indisputable primitive charms, Queens of the Stone is actually a step forward in Stoner Evolution. The guitars are still flint hard, the tunes still load bearing, but the sound roaring out of the speakers is far sleeker and more hypnotic than the dumb chug that Stoner Rock has periodically developed, devolved into in Homie's absence. The excellent regular John sounds almost motoric, as though New had level billing with Black Sabbath one strange night. There are keyboards and maracas on the very unstone age I was a teenage hand model, and Homie, who didn't sing in Caius, frequently swaps his bone-dry metallic tones for something a little more soulful on songs like You Can't Quit Me Baby. Very good review there, I think, generally, mm. um, um, considering we moan about the enemy a lot during this period but fair play kitty empire that's a very very astute uh view i think tom sinclair of entertainment weekly gave it a b minus rating which seems like a pretty good score to me although he did have some interesting things to say that seemed to counter that score somewhat remarking that the band delivers a workmanlike collection of heavy music that's just a bit too cerebral to fall under the stoner rock rubric uh and this Fu Manchu as an example. Queens of the Stone Age is intermittently potent, but when you hear the ripped off If Only, aka the Stooges' I Wanna Be Your Dog, you can't help but think Queens of the Stone Age might be a great band if only they could write a song that good on their own. I have I a feeling. Don't know what, I don't know what he's listening to there, to no, be honest. I think that is fucking ridiculous. Um, yeah. I see, I do see similarities between the two songs because they're both descending riffs based broadly around a three chord structure but i mean ripped off uh, it's it's just it, i can think of so many better examples of kind of like a, a riff being exactly the same they are reminiscent mm. and and josh homie has made it clear his love for the stooges and i'm sure there's an influence there but ripped off is just way ott in my opinion yeah for sure just yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. i agree Nonsense, 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 nonsense. James Hunter of Rolling Stone gave the album four stars out of five and commented that the band had found a vital place between art metal seriousness and pop pleasure. 
It begins right away with a trance like Regular John, a track that layers Homie's yelping guitar accents over a fuzzy groove, while other metalheads play around with sequences. Queens of the Stone Age, <laughs> Queens of the Stone Age, or something a little more heated and classical in mind. The rest of the album charges on with its compelling contrast between Homie's papery vocals and the surrounding rampage. Sometimes the songs explore pure heaviness, as on the wall rattling walking on the sidewalks, but more often they thrillingly toy with elements like vocal hooks, on you would know, and metal frenzy, how to handle a rope without giving in to either. Um, I mean, bar mislabeling it metal uh, a couple of times, I'm kind of okay with that. I have to say. Yeah, it's not the worst review. Not the worst. Nope. A couple of years later, Rolling Stone would retrospectively sum up the record by saying it made a useful connection between American meat and potatoes macho rock of the early 1970s, like Blue Cheer and Grand Funk Railroad, and the precision timing trones in German rock of the same period, which is a pretty good shout, I think. Um, Writing in spin, Joe Gross scored Queens of the Stone Age 7 out of 10 saying while there's nothing while there's really nothing in this collection worth trading in those melvin's albums for don't see why you can't have both it's strangely compelling to hear how homie and his cohorts killed many an afternoon in a thick thc haze with cans tago mago then worked it into their patented pedal abuse that really wound me up that melvin's thing yeah yeah like like going you know i've got the new um the new uh napalm death album here it's not going to make you want to give up your prodigy records <laughs> yeah, but, um, yeah, yeah because they're completely different yeah so yeah yeah i i i've never ever thought oh. the melvins is a bizarre comparison yeah yeah uh, yeah i don't understand that at all i mean you're nodding along there adam any any thoughts as to why that comparison might be made well, apart from the fact that they're quite both heavy yeah i, I again i think it's um melvin's links to stoner rock and um but i wouldn't Mm. link melvin's and queens of stone age particularly there's a far more commercial pop thing going on with queens that like melvin's don't have that falsetto-ness that feminine quality to them or anything like that anywhere near as much or at all really i don't think i think it's nonsense I mean, especially by this point, when you th- think of what Melvins were doing at this point, it was really like some quite... W- they, were, they were just getting into that, you know, they'd been dropped from a major label and they were doing really weird shit. Like, really yeah. weird. And quite why you... Th- th- this isn't a weird record. Like, it's no. unusual. Yeah. It's unusual sounding for a stoner rock band to take influences from the sort of places they're taking influence from. Mm. But it's hardly like you listen to it and you go, what are they doing? It's so weird. Mm. Like, it's... Mm. It's not, yeah. you know, and the Melvins were a fucking crazy ass, you know, fucking, they were more likely to, if you just said, oh, they were doing poker stuff at that point, that's when you would have gone like, oh yeah, I can hear, I, I can hear that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, yeah. I don't think it's a very good point at all, but there you go. Um, so, but generally pe- pretty positive reviews. Um, <laughs> there was one dissenting voice, however, uh, as, uh, <laughs> as I you, wonder who <laughs> you probably predicted, uh, music hating music critic, Robert Christigou praised his stupid, ugly head out of the dingy parapet of hell where he resides for enough time to simply appraise the album as a dud in his Consumer's Guide column for the Village Voice, because why bother writing words about something that someone sweated blood, sweat and tears into when you can just dismiss it as a dud? Um, 
His album of the week that week was PM Dawn's Dearest Christian. I'm so very sorry for bringing you here. Love, Dad. Thoughts on PM Dawn, Steve? <laughs> One hit wonder PM Dawn. Yeah. Um, I mean, set adrift on Memory Bliss, the PM Dawn song that people might know mm. from what? 93, I want to say 92, 93 mm. is all right. But I mean, so's, so's, you know, a Mr. Sandwich. Lover Lover by Shaggy, <laughs> probably people. But, you know, I'm not giving that album of the week over fucking, you know, Lateralis, you no. stupid old fuck. <laughs> um, Adam, you're a little bit younger than us, so I'm, I fear you may not, well, fear, I mean, uh, you're very lucky that you may not know PM Dawn. Are you familiar with PM Dawn at all? No, it feels like I've got to listen to them straight after this as well. Well, him. Just one really bloke. Him. Just one yeah, bloke. Him. Yeah, one bloke. He's just like DJ sort of type thing. Yeah. Just it's like um, it's like uh, he's sort of a poor man's uh, Howie B from um, uh, from uh, what are they called that fucking band. Um, oh my god! It's soul to soul. So, oh yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Just yeah, yeah. I Not do like Soul to Soul though, so you know. Well, Soul to Soul are fine, but PM Dawn yeah. isn't. Did a did a um, remix of the X Files theme tune once, that which is worth hearing if you want to laugh. Um, right, okay. Incidentally, uh, there was another album which is actually on the classic albums list that uh, Robert Christogu dismissed as a dud in the very same month. Um, oh, do you want to take a Can guess? I guess. Um, refused. Good guess, although it was 1998, I believe, wasn't it? Shape of Punt to Come, but... So is this? Fuck me, it is. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking we were in 1997. Fuck me, sorry. Um, no, it's uh, Around the Fur by Deftones. Wow, he's, oh, he's of an course. idiot. Yeah. Absolute idiot. He's a fucking idiot. Yeah, a stupid cunt. Uh, but there you go. Um, soon after the recording sessions were finished for the album, touring commenced with a band consisting entirely of ex-Kaius members, a lineup that I'm sure did nothing to quell the persistent comparisons to Kaius. Guitarist Dave Catching joined shortly after, and from this point forward, the band's lineup would change frequently. Um, did any of you see the band during this time, either of you? No, I didn't. Um, I missed them uh, on this particular tour. Although I did go, there is actually there's there's footage of them playing the Bazaar Festival in Belgium uh, on YouTube, which I did watch, and is it's pretty good. Cool. I mean, it's uh, it's a much more stripped down um, looking affair. I have to say, yeah. uh, uh, Queens of Stone Age not really known for their wild bombastic um pyro and live you know no. live shenanigans particularly um but it was just josh stood there and nick for the most part with his back to the audience yeah. um with just a pair of shorts on but the songs but they sound really good i mean it doesn't help that it's kind of raining and there's not many people there mm. um the only pyrotechnics but, they were known for were the ones coming out of nick's cock from what i recall um, yes it's true uh, um uh, and also i mean like you could tell that there's not a lot of real um, hype or excitement surrounding them because no one's there being like, it was just very much like, oh, we're going to check this band out. That's the feeling that I got. Um, so I didn't see them. I, I mean, I know they played, I've actually just got up their Glastonbury set. So oh, they played Glastonbury glastonbury on the 25th of june um before they played the big day out which i think we'll talk about in a minute mm -hmm. so they played glastonbury on the 25th of june 1999 mm -hmm. um seven 
songs born to hula avon mexicola the bronze you would know you think i ain't worth a dollar but i feel like a millionaire wow coming up real early mm. real early mm. and ended with regular john now i've actually just got up where they played and who they played with on that particular day mm-hmm. on that stage mm-hmm. at glastonbury that year so they played on the other stage uh, on the pyramid stage a fucking bizarre lineup on the pyramid stage that day headlined by rem wicked mm. um subbed by beautiful south mm. how did that happen oh, wow. um she's a perfect 10 steve yeah yeah I, but, she every, a, but she wears a 12 yeah uh, <laughs> unlike every beautiful south song ever made a perfect um whole bush blondie bare naked ladies bjorn again so sort of rem and whole letting the b the b the b side down um but that was on the that was on the pyramid stage on the other stage opened up with doves boring old boring doves um moke who i remember being a thing but i can't remember hearing mm. everlast mm. who is wicked queens of stone age Hello. so they're not like super high up but mm. they're not like bottom bottom um i mean they're above top loader on the sunday who opened this stage uh and should have gone away straight after performing <laughs> to be perfectly honest um but above them you look at the people above them and it's heather nova Fuck knows. Gay Dad. Remember Gay Dad just from being called Gay Dad. Mm. Deus, uh, who I, again, I remember, but I never listened to. Wilco, who obviously mm-hmm. is hugely, you know, critically acclaimed. Yep. Pavement, mm-hmm. ditto. Gomez, who were, you know, pretty hot shit back at then. At that time. And yep. at that particular point. And it was headlined by Cooler Shaker. Ah, Cooler Shaker. Ah, Cooler Shaker. <laughs> the deeply offensive indie band of choice um (laughs) (laughs) so not not for any like uh dodgy lyrics or anything like that just because their music's deeply offensive that's well and also because a posh kid called crispin is like doing his impression of indian music isn't he like (laughs) singing in an indian accent and going bingy bongy bong bang bing bong it's like mate that you don't you, you couldn't get away with that now um Definitely not. on any on any level no, um no. yeah yeah uh, um, anyway so that was the bill they played on it's quite an odd you know they, they stick out like a fucking sore thumb yeah aside from maybe aside from pavement yeah yeah well but even pavement are quite different to queens aren't they yeah. i think yeah. yeah i mean as as you um sort of teased there um i did actually see the band around this time although it's a bit of a weird one for me because um I saw them at the first gig that I ever went to, which was uh, the Big Day Out spon- uh, sponsored, headlined by Metallica in uh, the summer of 1999. 10th of July, 1999 at the Milton Keynes Bowl. Thank Renfrey. you very much. I do appreciate that. Um, very similar set list. Um, the Bronze, Born to Hula, Infinity, You Would Know, Mexicola, Avon, a cover of the Groundhog's Eccentric Man, You Can't Quit Me Baby, and Regular John. Um, and... I vaguely recall seeing them. I, I was I was not a fan at this point, and I had I went to that show to see Metallica. Do you know what I mean? And Creed. <laughs> I mean, I did see Creed, um, and I do remember it. Um, and annoyingly, I remember Creed more than I remember Queens of the Stone Age. Um, that is not me saying that Queens of the Stone Age were bad. I just I just i was 14 and i was stupid and i only knew a couple of Mm. bands um 
I think the only bands that I knew before I went were probably Metallica, Marilyn Manson, and Placebo. Um, Terrorvision? So, oh, fuck me. Of course, Terrorvision. Oh, Terrorvision was so good. Oh, Terrorvision good. Um, yeah. I've never mentioned that before on the show, I don't think, but I really like Well, poor old Nick, Nick Olivieri would have not got to see Terrorvision, Metallica or Terrorvision, presumably, because he got in a ruck, got taken away. There's pictures in Kerrang, weren't there, of him yeah. getting taken away in a paddy wagon with his bloody... Um, handcuffed mm, mm. and in all kinds of trouble yes for fight fighting television well you, you wouldn't you, get out yes they wouldn't they, they would they had to share the same uh dressing room dressing i believe room. and television they, they yeah. would, and they wouldn't get out or something yeah yeah queens queens wouldn't get out uh because ter- television were definitely playing late i mean television had a massive hit with tequila the previous summer well they're headlining the, they're headlining stage. the second stage yeah 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 um so you know uh but uh, yeah, yeah, I remember seeing I remember seeing those pictures and crying of um, Oliveri uh, getting taken away by the fuzz. Um, mm. But yeah, um, so I was there and I did see it, but I don't really remember it. But I'm sure it was great. Um, Adam, I mean, going back, go, going forward rather, sorry, in time, you did see Queens of the Stone Age on the 2011 re-release tour at the Roundhouse, which was a tour that I yes. was desperate to go to. Um, I mean, what are your thoughts on that particular show? Um, obviously, very, very happy because for me, obviously being a bit younger, I didn't see them actually until the Lullabies tour um, right. was the first time I saw them. Mm. So see Queens of Stone play the whole album in full. Um, yeah, it was just fantastic to hear all of their songs. Obviously, they played regular John, Avon, uh, maybe a couple of others every now and again, if only... So yeah, it was just amazing. It was they played really well. It was at the Roundhouse. Mm. Roundhouse sometimes great sound, sometimes shit sound. It was great sound that night. Nice. Um, yeah, so all round great gig. It was just like I said, it was just nice to hear all of those songs live. Um, yeah, that's the thing with Queens. Over the years, you you would never know what they would play um, on any given night. Like I said earlier they've dropped in like old b-sides like infinity that you just mentioned seen that yeah. live um, yeah yeah and it just kind of proves everything that we're we're talking about the fact that on any one night they can just pluck a song from their back catalog and smash it um, yeah just just proves it and the fact that they can just play their whole self-titled album all the way through again just proves it and i wish they would do it with rated r and songs for death at some point actually oh yeah rated r tour mm. yeah, would have been be i mean it would have been 20 years wouldn't it It would have been 20 i mean we'll talk about rated r in a bit but mm. yeah it would have been 20 mm. year um i i mean i have to say because anniversary I, shows because i adore adore this first queen's album so much i really wanted to go to that roundhouse show precisely because of what you just said in terms of they just don't play bar those three songs that you mentioned they just don't play songs from this album all that often and i was just desperate to hear some of these songs live at a time when i actually knew them <laughs> as opposed to back in 1999 when i was just a stupid 14 year old trying to get someone to buy me booze in a field um so i'm very very jealous that you managed to see that um i did however see them a little over a month later at the quite beautiful bournemouth academy um which was probably the second best queens of the stone age show i have ever seen and you were there as well it's, weren't you adam 
Yeah, it was an incredible night. It was two nights after they headlined the other stage at Glastow or before. Yeah. I can't remember which, yeah. one way or the other. Yeah. yeah, that show was insane. And I was so lucky because I, I couldn't get hold of a ticket. Bought It's one of the only times I bought a ticket off a tout at the last minute. Right. And oh, I'm so glad I did. Yeah, they were absolutely magical that evening. I remember uh, one point supported by Dan Dan and Anacaroid. I can never pronounce that name properly, uh, <laughs> but supported by them. Um, sort of a uh, Ross Robinson produced pop version of the Blood Brothers, almost, I would say. Um, they, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I remember at one point Josh Homme stopping the show and uh, saying, uh, I was feeling absolutely terrible uh, earlier today, but then I took some prescription drugs for my my back pain and now i feel absolutely great and I'm, I'm not sure if they were actually prescription drugs or not but um he was in a very very good mood let's say um and uh, the set list they started with regular john going to feel good hit of the summer threes and sevens do it again avon better living through chemistry in the fade hanging tree misfit love make it with you little sister tangled up and played first it giveth i think i lost my headache go with the flow and then encored with burn the witch no one knows and a song for the death decent 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 yeah possibly possibly one of the best set lists i've ever seen them play yeah the the only show that was better for me when i've seen queens of the stone age was um seeing them on the songs for the death tour at cardiff university Uh, yeah which is like go on yeah, my top one would be 100 Club in 2007 when they played oh, yeah. a, a last-minute show. Now, that was just madness. But yeah, yeah. other than that, it, yeah, the, that Bournemouth show is high up, high up on my list. It was incredible. Amazing venues, like a thousand cap, something like that. I mean, far too small room for Queens of the Stone Age to be playing at that time. Um, just, just brilliant. Was that in that that place in Bournemouth? Um, what, where did you say it was again? Bournemouth Academy. Bournemouth Academy. I think that's is that like a sort of an old it's an old like cinema. Yeah, yeah it's yeah, an it's old a lovely, it's, it's yeah, lovely in, venue. Yeah. yeah, it's down in Boscombe area of Bournemouth. Mm. It's mm. yeah. If you're familiar Yeah, I saw I saw Rancid there in two thousand and twelve. Nice, nice. Fucking brilliant. It's Fucking a real brilliant. it's a real shame. I mean, this is no no offense to anyone who lives in Bournemouth or anything like that, but it's a real shame that that venue it's such a nice venue and it's in a very kind of what the industry would call a B market town. Um and it's just a shame that such a beautiful venue is is in a place that bands don't really go to all that often. Mm. It's very very rare. Um but uh, I mean, the best way I can describe that venue is like it's like a mini Coco. If anyone's familiar with the Coco in London, yeah, yeah. I was I was about to say that with the um, the balconies because there's yeah. two levels of balconies up there. Yeah, um, yeah. and oh yeah, I've been there for uh, a club night before, and yeah. just being able to walk around, the balconies are really wide and beautiful. Um, yeah, you get a really good view of the stage from up yeah. there as well yeah but but even smaller than coco i it can't be any more than a mm. thousand and and then coco's 1500 so um yeah uh absolutely incredible um before we move on to the second part of this and rated r really we just need to talk about the reissue uh of queens of the stone age so following a deluxe edition reissue of rated r in 2010 Tommy announced that the band would reissue Queens of the Stone Age as well, stating that the album had become impossible to get. It'd been out of print for so long. I'm not very nostalgic by nature, so it wasn't like, guys, remember the days? It was more like in the internet age, this record should be able to get got, you know? 
I really like this band Cheap Trick and they were doing shows where they were playing their first three records three nights in a row. And so we started talking about, wow, okay, we'll never get a chance to re-release this thing. And what if we just focused on the first record? I don't know if that means we're going to play it exactly from start to finish. They did. We haven't really decided. It's kind of a cool idea. I'm just glad that it's not like some bad haircut when I listen to it. I've listened to it and I love that record and it's been really fun to try and put myself back in that headspace where I was just obsessed with trying to trance out on guitar. So the album was remastered by Brian Gardner for the reissue. Um, the title of the song How to Handle a Rope was extended to, Hand to handle, How to Handle a Rope, A Lesson in the Lariat. And three additional tracks were added uh, between the album's existing tracks. The Bronze, These Aren't the Droids You're Looking For, uh, which were from the album's recording sessions and had originally been released in 98 on the split CD um, for the Dutch band Beaver, who have already come up. And also Spiders and Vinegaroons from the Gamma Ray sessions, which had been released on the Caius Queens of the Stone Age split EP in 1997. My goodness, again massively massively incestuous and all that sort of thing what do we think of those three additional songs then gents i really like the bronze i will say um i don't necessarily feel like you need these songs and you certainly don't need them whacked in the middle of the fucking album like they mm. have chosen to do mm. which feels like one of the oddest decisions to make ever with a reissue to put the songs that were made in splits and mm. from different time periods just kind of whacked in the sort of well the middle of the record and then two towards the end of the record mm. it's a very strange decision i'm not sure i can think of another band who've ever done that before and it does it did jerk me out of my um like when i came to listen to the 2011 reissue uh having listened to the cd version that i bought back in the day mm. It did make me go, oh, what's going on here? It's a little bit like um, George Lucas plumping in that Jabba the Hutt scene in the middle of a new home. It is. Mm. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I have to say, I really, really, really like the idea on paper. Like on paper, I think it's actually quite a cool thing to do because if you're going to reissue an album, what's the point in it sounding the same as it was before? Um, but I have to admit that in my opinion, like of the of these three songs the only one that in my opinion personally uh is up to the standard of the rest of the songs on the album is the bronze if i'm if i'm yeah. totally honest um i do i i think the other two are cool but i think they're cool b-sides as opposed to cool songs that are essential for this record um uh, any additional thoughts on that adam yeah i i agree um i I've seen the bronze played live before and it's it's brilliant. The interesting thing though as well, um the bronze and again I don't understand why it was on this reissue. They released I just looked it up whilst you guys were chatting. There is an EP of B-sides that they put out um randomly. I can't remember what it was put out on called Stone Age Complications. Mm -hmm. Um and it's um six tracks and the bronze is on there. So I'm like why have they chucked it on this reissue? Uh, it's very very bizarre um, and yeah. yeah the other two songs they're, they're instrumentals and they've just kind of been chucked in there um, you've already got an instrumental get... haven't you as well in Hispanic yeah. Impressions which is, a, which is a I love Hispanic Impressions that's a great song but as Mr. Instrumental Man I don't think you need three instrumentals on this record definitely not not, not no. for no. Queens of the Stone Age not for Queens of the Stone anyway. Age yeah exactly mm. yeah um, and Night like Spiders and sorry and yeah spiders and vinegar runes appeared on the dvd they put out on the um 
entry menu, the opening menu. Over, or whatever, uh, again, over the woods and far away or something like that. Is that the one you mean? Yeah. 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 Mm. And again, it's like, we've kind of heard it. Why do we yeah. need to hear it again? It's also weird that they're picking, I would say, like you say, you're picking, putting three new songs in there. Two of them are uh, instrumentals. It's not like they were the only three songs they had. Quite. Yeah, yeah. And to put them in the middle, you say like, you know, I understand the idea of it um, doing a reissue and you don't want it to sound the same. I mean, I'd say that if, like, it's, it's of no interest. As someone who bought the album when it first came out, and a reissue that's not a remaster that doesn't give you anything else is of no interest to me, really. Um, ah. Why, why do you want, the, why do you want the, the album to sound like it did originally? Well, if it's a really good album... Mm. you want mm. people to hear it sounding really good and i don't think this takes i don't think this turns queen to stone age into a bad album but it is a, an odd decision which i think kind of interrupts the flow and um makes you question some of the decision making having like you say five tracks and three of them uh out of five on the bounce hispanic impressions you can't quit me baby these aren't the droids give the mule what he wants spiders and vinegaroons there's five songs three of them are instrumentals yeah yeah weird yeah, yeah. Mm. i i think the key thing that you said there is interrupting the flow of the record i mean that that's the thing with it but the key thing that i would pick you up on there that that the reason why i do actually think it's worth getting the well you can't get the original anymore anyway but the reason why i do think the reissue is worth it is because of the remaster now we've talked about remixes the difference between remixes and remasters on um these classic albums before and remasters are very rarely worth bothering with but i think this is one of the few cases where it actually is worth bothering with because even just the opening of regular john for example if you just if you a b the two the difference in the in the two riffs coming out the speakers is really quite massive in my opinion um and I, 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 I just, I do think that as a sound overall, it's just much, much punchier, much more, much more sort of, well, it's just more of a gut punch, I guess. And you can hear elements of the uh, songs which you couldn't quite hear on the original release. Um, I'm lucky enough to own both because I do have the original Roadrunner release. And there definitely is quite a p perceptible difference between the two. So from that point of view, I do think it's worth having the newer one. Mm. But I'm not sure. If, I mean, I'd probably just take... I don't know if I'd even bother taking These Aren't The Droids You're Looking For, Spiders and Greens off, because I don't think they're bad songs. I just think they ruin the flow of the album if you're listening to it as an album, you know. Mm. Um, I'm going to have to take your word for that, because even though I do own the original Roadrunner um, version of it that came out in 1998... I don't own a CD player, so ah. I can't listen to it. <laughs> um, have you ever um, uh, AB'd them, Adam? Do you know? Do you know what I mean in terms of the remaster? Yeah, um, no, I haven't AB'd them before, but um, yeah, I kind of agree with what what you're saying uh, in regards to the flow. Mm -hmm. Cool. It doesn't 100%. go. It doesn't go with the flow, uh, as Queen of Stonehenge would say. Mm. I mean, I wanted to end it on a high point, but... Uh... Well, I mean, at, <laughs> at that point, I mean, no one knows where they're going to go left. Next, they? Oh, I, th I think, I, I think Renfrey wants to uh, string, him up, string himself up from a hanging tree right now. 
Mm. I think I'm losing my headache, guys. Come on, let's just get on with this. That was the worst one. Oh. Come on. It was, mate. If, if I had a tail, I'd bloody smack <laughs> you with it. Oh, God. <laughs> let's end this now. <laughs> we should, we Sorry should about on, we, should, we should end on time like clockwork. <laughs> oh, <laughs> fucking what a couple of villains. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> that really is the, that is the last one. Um, all right. Uh, thanks very much for listening, guys. Now, as I said, that is Queen to Stone Age, self-titled debut album as picked by Renvery. He's also picked Rated R by Queens of Stone Age. Now, if you want to li- listen to that, which is where things get super interesting, please go over to patreon.com forward slash right act podcast and subscribe to our five pound a month um, tier, which gives you access to all of these classic albums, not just the rated R one. We've got albums over there by Radiohead and Pink Floyd and Marilyn Manson and Guns N' Roses and Weezer and Cave-In and Glassjaw and Lamb of God and Sepultura and Blur and loads of other people, probably, and all the Rioters reviews as well, which I can't be bothered to go through. Patreon.com forward slash Riot Act Podcast. Cheers. Um, thanks very much. Cheers, guys. Uh, it's been fun. Thank you. Fun and um, I will see you over on the old Rated R one, which was what we're going to Gonna do that now, aren't we? Yeah, See you later. Yeah. yeah. I'm, temp- I'm tempted to put a little bit of a in the fade out um, for this last bit. Something in my house has just fallen over. <laughs> just from you, as you said that, a bag, a bag just went. Oh, <laughs> a bag just committed suicide. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh. See you later. <laughs> <laughs>